get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Get ready for winter driving at Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers with super deals on tires, including up to $200 on new Goodyear tires, plus oil changes, brakes, batteries, and more. For value and savings, click on GoToDobbs.com today. This is the BK and Ferrario Podcast, powered by I Promise. Now here's BK and Ferrario. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. It is BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Let's start things out by addressing the obvious. We have to address the elephant in the room. We will get to the Cardinals coming up here in just a bit. My buddy Therese Paylor is going to join us coming up at 1130. We've got Jesse Rogers of ESPN.com. Going to talk a little baseball with him coming up at noon. The first text is in from the 636. <laughs> BK, why did Chris Ranji from the fast lane get let go? So let's talk about this for a second. Ferrario, there were some changes to the lineup on Friday. They happened right after our show. The fast lane addressed them. We have not talked about them much yet, especially not here on our show. I'm going to miss Jamie like crazy. We are going to miss Chris Ranji like crazy. I consider both of them not only to be colleagues as as professionals, but also friends. Mm-hmm. Ferrario, you know this, and listen, I'm, I'm going to focus on our show. I'm truly going to miss Chris Ranji, and I feel awful. This has been a terrible year for this business and for a whole hell of a lot of businesses out there in general. But for our show, for the three hours that we're on the air here, you know as well as I do that when you start in radio, this becomes more about relationships than anything else. Mm-hmm. And it is very rare to find a show where everybody truly likes hanging out together. Yep. Like it's been a pandemic, so we haven't done a whole lot of that outside of work. But if there wasn't a pandemic, you, me and Jamie would have been going out to grab drinks on a random Thursday night or watching games together on Sundays. Like we were truly friends. We are truly friends. And so I don't know if there's anybody in the world that I have spoken with more over the last nine months than you and Jamie. (laughs) And so for one of those guys to be no longer here with us, it's hard Mm -hmm. and I'm going to miss him like crazy. But this is how radio goes. Things move on. The show will move forward. I'm thrilled for you. I can't wait to do this with you as an even bigger part of this show moving forward. And a lot of people have asked, hey, is the show going to change? What's what's going to be different about this show now compared to when Jamie Rivers was here? The answer is, of course, it's going to be different. Because we don't have Jamie Rivers here anymore. We don't have a former blue superstar with us in studio every day. Um, You cannot replace what Jamie Rivers brought to the table. But I hope that there is some good in this as well. You know, Alex Ferrario is more than capable of being an unbelievable co-host, especially here in the middays. And I can't wait to have you as a bigger part of the show. But I wanted to address this kind of off the top. We're going to miss him like crazy. Mm -hmm. He's going to be unbelievable in the afternoons with Anthony Stalter, Brad Thompson and uh, Brad Barnes. But we're going to keep going here. And it's BK and Ferrario moving forward. I finally got the first uh, first place setting in the name. So, Ferrario, how you doing today, I'm man? I'm good. I didn't have to pay any money for that. I figured, <laughs> you know what? Jamie took care of that. I'm fine with having the second name. No, you're absolutely right, BK. And just to say a couple of things, like I've known Jamie 
since I've started doing blues pre and post games because he kind of helped out on the analyst side when I was doing them uh, as the uh, pre and post game host. And you build chemistry with someone and you know better than I do that when you build chemistry with someone on the radio, it's hard to lose that and try and build something else up. So, you know, we're excited for Jamie. We're excited for each other to have that opportunity. And, you know, we've been getting a lot of responses on social media over the weekend saying, you know, what's going to happen with this show? And again, we're going to try and bring the exact same energy, the excitement, the fun, the statistics, the nerd numbers that you like to do. Absolutely. <laughs> We're going to bring all of those every day for you from Monday through Friday, which I'm excited about. Yeah, and it's it's going to be it's going to be different. It's a new challenge. Um, not having Jamie here to lean on is mm-hmm. going to be tough at times, but this is this is the world of radio as we know it things change they change consistently and in a pandemic year when there's been a loss of revenue for everybody this is how things go right and so we're gonna miss him but we're gonna do the best to give you guys the best show that we possibly can and that's what we're gonna do here from 11 to 2 mondays through fridays right here on 101 espn on bk and ferrario it's 11:05. your time check brought to you by clarkson jewelers an officially licensed rolex jeweler 65780 is the air comfort service text line if you guys would like to get involved in the show today let's start out with some baseball ferrario because the winter meetings are supposed to be this week <laughs> they're kind of going to be this week anyways and the first order of business at least in my opinion is something that steve phillips of mlb network radio talked about last week by christmas we need to know whether or not there's going to be a dh and and if not so be it there won't be this year uh and there's no going back on it because it's what really is awful is constructing your roster with the idea that there's no dh and then finding out later that there is and how you might have spent your money differently in constructing your roster that could impact you for the long term. That's the first thing that needs to happen. Like, we can all talk till we're blue in the face about the options that the Cardinals have to be able to add to this lineup next year, and we will. And we'll <laughs> talk about that coming up at noon with Jesse Rogers. But the first domino that has to fall if you're a general manager, if you're John Mosaylock and you're in his shoes is, okay, what does my roster look like? What am I trying to prepare for this year? Do I have a designated hitter or not? And how many players am I allowed to have on my major league active roster? Is it going to be 30? Is it going to be 28, 26? What are we dealing with here? And so the first thing that needs to be negotiated for this week while they're doing these virtual meetings instead of the true traditional winter meetings is they've got to figure out those two things. What's the roster look like? And what's the designated hitter situation in the National League moving forward? If they don't, frankly, you're going to be looking at a stagnant free agent market for a really long time because we already know there's a bunch of teams in Major League Baseball that are sitting there saying, oh, well, we're slashing prices. We're not going to spend. We're not going to spend. But when you have all of these names on the market that can increase your roster and can help your offense, And they're just sitting there because you haven't decided. And look, they've stated a lot that National League teams have been told, plan as if there's no DH. So if you're a president of baseball operations and you've been told that and you said, okay, no Kyle Schwarber, no Nelson Cruz, don't think we're going to go for Eddie Rosario, let's look at the other markets. How do you flip that when you've already planned the way that you're going with this? And frankly, I don't know if we're going to get that decision at the winter meetings. I think we should. But for the way that this is all gone, BK, 
Winter meetings really feel like to me that it's just going to be a quiet time before you actually get any movement. I don't know how it can be that. I'm with you on the free agent market. Like, I don't know that I expect JT Realmuto or George Springer, DJ LeMayhew, Trevor Bauer, kind of the four big time free agents this offseason. I don't know if I expect any of them to sign this week. I think we could be waiting into January, even yeah. February, before we see significant movement on the free agent market. I do expect there to be some sort of a decision on these important timelines because it's not just about the free agent market. There's also the rule five draft coming up very shortly. I think that's this week. Yeah. And so if you're a general manager and you're looking at this rule five draft, you need to know, do I have a roster spot for these players? Because if you take somebody in the rule five draft, you are having to put them onto your active roster next season. And if you have 28 players, that becomes a lot more palatable than if you have 26 guys. And so there are multiple different lines of improving your roster. You can do so in the rule five. You can do so in free agency trades, international market. I know there's some postings that have already gone up um, from overseas. They've got to be signed by January 1st from the Korean league. So all of these different things mean there has to be urgency here. From the owners and the MLBPA, the MLBPA over the weekend announced that they officially have their executive board in place. It's about time that's huh. taken place. <laughs> like, it's crazy to me that we don't have any sort of answers right now on these questions. But I think this week we will get some. Otherwise, I don't know what baseball is trying to accomplish here if they don't have those answers. Yeah, yet. if you don't have these answers and you're going to have a bunch of National League teams that are going to be frankly pissed off. And I think it's important too for people to understand kind of what these winter meetings are. Like this isn't the wheeling and dealing time of free agency. Like this is where conversations begin. Now, I've never been to the winter meetings, but I've covered them in terms of from St. Louis before. And really what this is is this is just the opportunity for the presidents of baseball operations to be in the same building with each other. But a lot of this time is spent in hotel rooms with their own management on cell phones, on Zoom calls, on phone calls, trying to decide what this offseason is going to look like. So this would be the time to do it. But for how quiet this has all been, BK, it makes me really hard to believe that the Major League Baseball will say, okay, DH is going to happen now. Because frankly, these are the times where you're starting to build some momentum and there's been no momentum built on this DH front. All it has been has just been people complaining that we've got no news on this. And if you look at how this affects the NL central in particular, I'm not sure there's any division that is more impacted by these decisions than the Cardinals division, right. because the Cubs want to make some trades, but is anybody actually willing to take on those contracts? Is anybody willing to make the deal for Chris Bryant in particular? What's going to happen with Kyle Schwarber? Can he come back to the Cubs or is he going to have to go out to the open market? And for Schwarber, well, if you go out to the open market, can you sign with the National League team? Because he can play some outfield fine, but he's probably a DH moving forward. The Cardinals and Brewers both don't seem to have a whole lot of flexibility, but the one place that the Cardinals could add to their lineup in particular is as a designated hitter. Right. But we don't know if that's going to be there. The Reds now reportedly want to trade Sonny Gray, but they also want to add a starting shortstop. What does the market look like there? Are teams going to prioritize adding to the offense or their starting rotation? And <laughs> is there going to be a limit on how many pitchers you're able to carry on your active roster? Like for all of these teams within the division, 
There are significant questions that need to be answered, and none of them can be answered until we get the first domino that is DH, roster sizes, roster construction. All of these are impossible to answer in this division in particular until Major League Baseball gives them some sort of a direction on what we're going to have next year. Yeah, basically everything that they need to know for them to say, okay, well, this is what the season's going to be. With the National League, I wonder, too, if it's going to be the point where they've been told there's no DH. If they hear there's going to be a DH, how fast can you switch that? Right. Because we heard Bill DeWitt, the third, tell us on, on the show, there's three or four different plans that are out there right now in terms of finances. And I know this is just from St. Louis. You'll get some big spenders in the National League if they know the DH is going to be there. But for a team like the Cardinals or a team like the Reds or like the Cubs in the NL Central that you talked about, how fast can you flip that switch? Can you say, okay, now there's a DH, now we're going to be willing to spend money? Because if you're already told there's no DH, you're planning as if that's what it's going to be. So you're building your roster towards that. You can always add, but if that's what the plan is and you don't know until January that this is what's going to take place... That's got to affect you pretty pretty heavily, doesn't it? I wonder if this played into the Braves' decisions at all. Because you yeah. see them go out and immediately jump on the pitching market, and I wonder if some of the money that they would have potentially spent on a DH went to their rotation instead. We all know that Marcelo Zuna is the big-time free agent from them. They just let go of Adam Duvall as well. And according to Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic, MLB instructed clubs in a memo last week to proceed under the assumption that the DH will not be used in the National League this year. Of course, that kind of coincided with us hearing here in in St. Louis. Michael Gersh said that that was the plan in San Francisco. Their GM said the same thing. I hope that that changes. I believe that it is going to change, but I understand that the owners, if you're an owner right now and you want to keep the costs down, one way to do so is by not adding another five to $10 million player in your lineup. This up. And even if there is a DH internally, you got to think that that's not going to be where they go to upgrade. Like, look, it's no question the Cardinals know that you need. You don't upgrade. think the Cardinals would use that? I don't think so because that's more money they're going to have to spend. They'll uh, they'll use it, but they're going to use it internally. They're mm. going to use it for some of their players. Like they know they got to fix their offense, but I just really wonder that regardless DH or no DH, they're going to go out there and spend four, five, six million dollars extra than what they were planning. These outlooks for Ario. I'm Brandon Kylie. We'll talk this over a little bit more coming up at twelve o'clock with Jesse Rogers of ESPN.com. Um, coming up at 1130, Therese Paler of Yahoo Sports going to join us to talk about what I thought was the biggest win of the weekend, the Cleveland Browns being able to take down the Tennessee Titans. Are we supposed to take the Browns for real right now? Are they actually a legitimate contender in the AFC? We'll talk about that coming up in just about 15 minutes. But coming up next, speaking of contenders, Eli Drinkwitz is not only a contender for SEC Coach of the Year, He should right now be the favorite for SEC Coach of the Year. We'll talk about the big win for the Tigers coming up next on 101 ESPN. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. Clean snap, kick on the way. It is perfect. And the Missouri Tigers have done it in walk-off fashion. 50 to 48 in a thriller in Como. You know, Mizzou Nation is getting excited about what we're doing. Recruits are taking notice, and uh, we're not done yet. That was Eli Drinkwitz, that audio courtesy of the SEC Network. The Tigers kick a game winner and come back from their biggest fourth quarter deficit 
in Mizzou football program history. The single greatest fourth quarter comeback in the history of the program with Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Alex, I, I was thrilled with the win, of course, and there were about seven different moments when I fully expected that Mizzou was going to Mizzou that game, <laughs> and they didn't find a way to do so, and that's kind of been the theme of the season. Eli Drinkwitz, to me, the biggest thing that he has accomplished is that he's changed the culture within that program. The adversity where they get hit in the mouth and they move forward is something that hadn't been there in recent seasons. Basically, since 2014, this is a team that when they got hit, they would fold. They would they would fold the tent and they would go home and lose that game. They didn't do that against Arkansas. They didn't do that against South Carolina earlier this year. It didn't happen against Kentucky. And they were able to beat the defending champion LSU Tigers earlier this year as well, which kind of started this recent run. My biggest takeaway from the game on Saturday was that Eli Drinkwitz should be, as of today, the favorite to win SEC Coach of the Year because the only other alternative to me was Sam Pittman of Arkansas, Mm -hmm. and Mizzou just beat them head-to-head because, in my opinion, Mizzou was the the better coached team. That was not a matter of talent outwinning the game for Missouri. It was a matter of Mizzou being the better coached team against Sam Pittman head-to-head. So Eli Drinkwitz, to me, on Saturday, not only won the game, but I think he should have probably won the SEC Coach of the Year as well. And he frankly did that without their best player. And you talk about getting punched in the mouth, and that's losing Nick Bolton in a way that he shouldn't have been lost. A targeting call in that first half. And that was the moment where you watch and you say, yep, this is Mizzou. This is what you expect. Blown out in the second half. The former head coach is going out there defensively and shutting them down. But they didn't. And, you know, I'm watching that second half, BK, and I'm, I'm paying attention to the sideline because, frankly, that's where that that's where that chemistry is built from what Eli Drinkwitz has done. We've talked about in the past where they're huddling around plays that end up in their sideline and the players are cheering on their own teammates and watching the Tigers defensively shut down Arkansas, which they hadn't been able to do in the first half. And an entire sideline cheering the entire game, jumping up and down in every single play to show support to that team. It's a different it's a different chemistry that they've built there. And what Eli Drinkwitz has done is he's gotten all of these guys to buy into his system. And like that's rare to do for a head coach that just comes over. But he did that immediately. And when you lose a defensive player, when you're able to do what they were able to do and just kind of continue to push forward. It's just a different recipe for success. And I think, I mean, we saw it over the weekend, right? The four-star recruit that Eli Drinkwitz was able to get to commit. That's what he's been able to provide to the Missouri Tigers. And again, that, in my opinion, I texted you after the game, was probably their best win of the season. I think so. It's between that and LSU. I'd probably go LSU just because I I don't know if what we've seen since that game happens yeah. without the LSU game, if that makes sense. So uh, on your point about Nick Bolton, though, yeah. I think it's really important because for anybody that's not a Mizzou fan that's listening right now, Nick Bolton is one of the best college players in the country. Full stop. He is an unbelievable middle linebacker for the Tigers. He's going to be a first round pick in next year's NFL draft. He was ejected for targeting late in the first half. And that means that you end up missing the entirety of the second half. The Tigers backup linebacker, Jamal Brooks, Mm -hmm. missed a tackle on the final drive for Arkansas that ultimately led to the touchdown. And then on the two point conversion that put Arkansas up at that point in time, 48 to 47, 
Jamal Brooks was the one that dropped the interception that falls straight into the arms of the Arkansas receiver. So he misses the tackle that leads to the touchdown and then misses the interception that leads to the two point conversion. He was going to be the goat in that game was Nick Bolton's direct replacement. And then the Tigers offense is able to pick him up. They go down the field and they kick the old the, the game winning field goal. That is the adversity that would have folded them a year ago, that would have folded them three years ago. And that's what's changed under Eli Drinkwitz. He's found a way to build this team up. You talk about the energy, it's it, it the the chemistry, yeah. it's it's all of that, right? They have a belief. They go into these games, and instead of believing that when something goes wrong, that's going to be what kicks them while they are down, they're able to believe that they are the team that is better, and they will ultimately rise above, and it's it's a real interesting thing to be able to see because it's an intangible, but it really does matter whenever you actually see it implemented on the field. Eli Drinkwitz has done that in... 12 months now, basically since being uh, taking over as the Mizzou head coach and he has sold his system to fans. He has sold his system to recruits. He has sold his system to players. And now we're seeing the results taking place on the field. And it's a five and three record, which you see and you're like, okay, why are you guys this excited over a five and three record? But you take away those first two games where it was against Alabama and number (laughs) 21, Tennessee. And it's like, okay, where are we starting off with this? But from that point on, right, that loss to Tennessee, it's where things kind of change direction. And they're doing this, too, with a bunch of guys that I don't think people expected to be this good. Right. Like Connor Bazelik is out there. I'm watching this game, BK, and I'm thinking is I mean, this guy is playing at like elite quarterback level for the Missouri Tigers. I mean, I think I saw you talk about it on Twitter. Blaine Gabbert was the last one that has done what Connor Bazelik has yeah, done. 300 least. plus yards and zero touchdowns. So a volume passer that did not throw interceptions right. um, in three or more games in an individual season. The last Mizzou Tiger to do that was Blaine Gabbert back in 2009. So it's been more in, than a decade. Yeah. And, and I mean, this guy is going out there and he's just placing footballs into the hands of receivers. I mean, frankly, they're set. They've set themselves up for success. Like this is the ultimate first year you could have if you're Eli Drinkwitz. It's been incredible to watch and the Tigers are going to try to continue this on Saturday against Georgia. It's an 11 a.m. kickoff on SEC Network. I'm not expecting the Tigers to win that game, but coming into the season, I would have told you there's zero chance that they win that football game. And now there's at least some chance that I'm not totally writing them off in that game, that they have no chance to win it, given the way that things have gone for both Missouri and Georgia. One other quick thing that I wanted to bring up here before we get to Therese Paler on the other side. The best game of the weekend was BYU versus Coastal Carolina, a game that Coastal Carolina termed the mullets versus the Mormons, which was incredible. By the way, great T-shirt. Incredible. And I wanted to mention this because something that college football does that really bothers me is the way that they schedule non-con games 10, 12, 15 years down the road. Something that I would like to see moving forward is for the group of five teams, the non-power five Teams, teams like Cincinnati and BYU and Coastal Carolina. I would love to see them, and I don't think this will happen, but I wish it would. I would love to see them leave one open week at the very end of the season. So schedule 11 games going into the year. And then that final week of the season in your non-con game, Mm -hmm. let's match teams up. Because this game between BYU and Coastal Carolina was finalized on Wednesday and Thursday of last week. They had three 
two or three days to be able to prepare for this game. If you can do that the week of the game, what if we did this two or three weeks out where the final month of the regular season, basically going into November, we then decide what is the final week of the year for the contending teams in the group of five. So a team like right now, Cincinnati, Hey, instead of playing a uh, team that's ranked 105th in some of the power rankings in the final week of the year, we're going to match you up against Coastal Carolina this week. So that way, both of you can get a quality potential win on your schedule. And then going into the college football playoff rankings, you now have a head to head victory potentially against another top 25 opponent, which totally changes the way that that college football playoff committee should look at you going into those rankings. So This is something that I thought was awesome to watch on Saturday, but I think it could have some big picture ramifications moving forward as well. I think it's a way to separate the teams that should be the top echelon and the teams that are kind of smoke and mirrors, as we like to say on this show. (laughs) And I think BYU falls into that category like they have played, in my opinion, one of the best best schedules this season in terms of the way that they've been playing. I've always thought that they have kind of gotten the shorthand of not being considered a top team that can make it into the playoffs. But this weekend was the reason why, because there are games that when you put them up against teams that they don't normally play against, they're going to show their true colors. And I think doing this schedule, when you brought it to my attention, BK, is a way to take away those teams that show their true colors before you really get into it. So this would be the ultimate way to at least differentiate who deserves to be in those top four college football playoffs and teams that should be there, but we see in a different light once they go up against teams that actually show competition. Yeah, I mean, right now, Cincinnati's ranked 7th and Louisiana is ranked 17th. What if this weekend those two teams played each other? Like that, I would love to see that game. And then if Cincinnati wins it, okay, now you've got a qual- win on your schedule, right. and that changes the way that they should be seen. Maybe they don't still get into the college football playoff, but it at least gives them a realistic shot because right now with the way that teams are scheduling, there's just no way that they're ever, ever going to be able to have a realistic opportunity to get in. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Coming up next, are the Cleveland Browns actual contenders in the AFC. We're going to ask Therese Paler of Yahoo Sports here on 101 ESPN. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. Alongside Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Excited to go out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line. Therese Paler of Yahoo Sports. He's a senior NFL writer for Yahoo Sports. Also the host of the Yahoo NFL podcast and the Therese Paler show joining us here on BK and Ferrario. Therese, always appreciate the time, man. How you doing today? I'm doing great, BK. How are you doing, man? Uh, I'm doing fantastic, about as well as Browns fans should be doing this morning. <laughs> Therese, what the hell am I supposed to make of this team, man? I, I kind of wrote them off earlier in this year as being a fun story, a solid team mm-hmm. that maybe they go 9-7, and 10-6, and six, something like that, but I never really took them seriously as a legitimate contender. Should I be, though, after their win against Tennessee? Look, that was a big win because I think, you know, obviously the first tier of the AFC is Kansas City and and Pittsburgh, but that second tier is Buffalo, Cleveland, and Tennessee. And I was pretty clear that I thought Cleveland was like number five, you know, in the AFC as far as like, you know, how good you really are. And, um, you know, that's a big win. Like they came out and they jumped those guys. They jumped those guys. And I still think that this is still a year that's going to end up being like a building season. Like, you know, the 99 Rams don't come around 
really often at all. Like you normally have to build toward being a Super Bowl champion, right? But um, with, with with some playoff losses, and then you capitalize in like year two or year three of that. So you know, I, I think they'll lose in the first or second round. And but but this is still like a big deal for them to beat a team like that because it shows they might be closer than we think to maybe contending. Um, and the, the point in the column, just to wrap that up, like, hey, you know, Baker Mayfield needed this too, just for his long-term Absolutely. outlook. Like, he needed that because, honestly, I mean, I've been watching the same games you have. Like, they've been doing it with the run game, not him. So, like, this should get people off his back for a while and buy him some time. But he's got to keep playing like that if we want to take them seriously. And they have to improve their depth. But that happens this offseason. So, Therese, on the flip side of that, then what are we supposed to make of the Tennessee Titans? Because I think a lot of people considered them possibly the third best team in the AFC with Tannehill and Derrick Henry. And they've had losses like this, but this one seems to uh, set them back a bit, in my opinion. Yeah, they're home. You know, they were at home in that game. Um, and this was a team that they should be better than. I mean, the, the Titans made the AFC championship game last year. So for them to get down 38 to 7 says something about where Cleveland's at and for the Titans I like the fact they really fought back in that game they didn't roll over which I would expect I would expect them to fight back cuz Rabel's got that attitude you know what I mean <laughs> but um you know I think it's a flawed team and I think it's a flawed team whose defense is not championship level and it will catch up to them they have like your window's only so long they have got to meaningfully improve their defense this offseason to get to a championship level because what they have right now offensively and how Arthur Smith's got that going if he's not a head coach next year it will be the year after so like you kind of got a window here you got to take advantage of that and um, I, I think you know their, their, their issue is their defense and that game exposed it we're talking to Therese Paler here on 101 ESPN Therese I think the biggest surprise to me yesterday was Seattle losing at home against the Giants with Colt McCoy starting at quarterback. I I don't even know where to begin with this game. I mean, on one hand, props to Joe Judge and the Giants. They seem to be kind of clearly in the driver's seat in the NFC East right now, but I thought Seattle was a real contender for the Super Bowl, and I know that defense hasn't been great this year, but I've always been able to count on their offense. And then mm-hmm. they go into this one and they just lay an egg. What happened to them offensively yesterday against the Giants? Well, they faced the Giants' defense is quietly kind of good. Like entering that game, they were like fourth in the league in sacks. So you know they kind of get after or turnovers. Like they get after you a little bit, man. Um, James Bradbury is one of the better corners in football, quietly. Um, and their defensive front is big and stout. Um, and Leonard Williams has come on. So they ran into like a good defense that they probably underestimated a little bit. Because, you know, we all look at the Giants and be like, ah, they stink. But no, they actually play really hard for Joe Judge. And I said this a couple times on the podcast. You know, the way they compete on a week-to-week basis like kind of reminds me a little bit of Brian Flores and the Dolphins last year where you could see like the competence and they just weren't there yet. But you, you figure like this year, you know, or the next year they'd be pretty, pretty competitive. And um, I think that's where we're at with the Giants. Like I do I think they'll finish with a winner record, no. but you know, they, they've been close in every game this year. I think in, I think all of their losses have been within 10 points except one, you know, and that's saying a lot for a team without Saquon Barkley, you know, um, so I, I think they ran into a team that, you know, those guys get paid too, and their defense is quietly kind of good. And um, defensively, we know Seattle's issues, BK. Like, we know. Yeah. The past, you know, you can throw on these guys, but the thing that really concerns me is that, you know, in that scheme, it's a lot of cover three. That's the takeaway to run. The Giants ran for 190 yards on them. Um, how? 
Yeah, well, I know how. They're well coached and they're tough up front, you know. But, but like, if you're Seattle, that's not okay. Not against Colt McCoy, at quarterback. You make Colt McCoy beat you vertically. And Darius Slayton's a good player, but uh, that's not enough. Like, they, they, they've got some issues there. And that's another really flawed team. I don't think they're better than the Seahawks. I'm sorry, I don't think they're better than the Saints or the Packers. <laughs> So then in that division, then, Therese, when you look at the NFC West, you have the Rams who beat the Cardinals. And I think for a while, like BK mentioned, we're talking Seattle as the best team. So are the Rams the best team coming out of that division right now? Boy, do you, it comes down to how much faith you have in Jared Goff. Um, <laughs> Not much. Yeah, I mean, his, I mean, this is a guy you can heat up. When you heat him up, he can't really do his thing. He needs to play action. He needs the scheme stuff. He doesn't do the second reaction stuff. You know, I'm not hating. Like, it can work. Like, he got to the Super Bowl. But it's, it takes, like, a great run game and McVay being on point. And, you know, in the playoffs, I'm not betting on that. Like, I would bet on the Seahawks over that because of Russell Wilson. Um, but their defense is good now. I think Brandon Staley's done some great things for that defense. I know, you know, um, I was one of the people like, oh, you firing Wade Phillips? Well, yeah, because – um, they're a lot more balanced now. They make adjustments. Um, you know, they, they cannot just bring pressure. They play coverage in the back end. The young secondary has gotten a lot better. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've watched their games and be like, oh, wow, this, this Darius Williams guy can play. Oh, wow, this Jordan Fuller guy can play. Troy Hill. Like, their, their young secondary can get it. And obviously, Jalen Ramsey having the best year of his career and Aaron Donald. So, it's a really good team. I just don't trust Garrett, Jared Goff. I'm, you know, I'm sorry. Um, I'd, I'd still pick the Seahawks there. I think the Cardinals are coming back down to earth. But, um, yeah, I'd, I, I, it depends on how much faith you have in Goff. And I just don't feel like when the rubber meets the road that their run game is strong enough to lift them in the way that he was lifted two years ago in the playoffs. It seems like that Week 16 game is probably going to decide that division because if you look at the kind of the schedule uh, other – elsewhere uh the seahawks have the jets in washington over the next couple of weeks i I think they'll win both of those games although i thought they were going to beat the giants and then you've got the rams after that so it feels like that's where it's going to be determined but i did want to ask you uh therese about that rams cardinals game and the other side of it what what in the world has happened to the cardinals because i was all in on kyler murray i was all Mm -hmm. in on that offense i know that they have some deficiencies i understand that they are not a perfect team but this thing has gone south quickly, and it seems to have coincided with his injury in his shoulder. Yes. Is this as simple as Kyler's not right, and that's what's gone wrong with the Cardinals right now, or is there something bigger that needs to be discussed? That's part of it, but that's not the only reason. Like, So Kyler Murray, in all their wins, like he was rushing 10 times a game. And recently, since the shoulder injury, he's rushed like five. That's been a consistent theme. So he's not running as much, which tells you he's not right. And I know Kyle, you know, I know Cliff Kingsbury was saying before the game, he thinks he's right. He had a great week of practice. And he did throw the ball pretty good, but it's still not the same if he's not running, especially in the red zone. So that's a big deal. Like, shoulder injuries are big. He's not a big guy. So, like, you know, he's got that joint. What happens if a big guy lands on him now? Like, that's something he's going to be conscious of the rest of the season. Um, but that's not the only reason why. He's missing a security blanket in Larry Fitzgerald. Um, he was out for this game, I think, um, on injured reserve. And, I, you know, I'll, I'll, one more thing here to keep in mind, like Jared Goff went off, but, like, yeah, he did it without Corey Peters being on the defensive line, um, Jordan Phillips, and Chandler Jones. So, I mean, that, those are three pretty big losses for those guys. Um, so, it, I mean, it's some different things. You know, that, that's another team that's learning how to win. I'm still excited about Kyler Murray's future, but it does explain why, you know, he has to remain diligent about not getting hit, 
why he had, why the Cardinals have to continue to build the offensive line and protect him because you know he is the offense. Him and Nuke are, are the offense, but if if Murray is nicked up, it kind of changes the dynamism of it, and that changes the dynamism of their entire team. Therese, final question, kind of on on this line of of discussion here. The final spot in the NFC is now really up for grabs. It's basically the Vikings, the Cardinals, and the 49ers as the top contenders. 49ers still have to play tonight. Uh, They're a one-point favorite against the Bills at home. But of those three teams, who do you trust the most to get that final spot in the NFC wildcard? Without looking at their schedules right now in front of me, I just go based on like what I know about the teams and mm-hmm. what I've watched them, okay? So I'm worried about Murray's shoulder injury. Like That, that does really concern me, and I'm worried about the injuries they have. So I'd, I'd probably put them less in that group, which is amazing. Um, but, you know, for the most part, the Vikings are fairly healthy. Um, you know, they seem to finally round it in the form a little bit. I wasn't impressed with their win yesterday, BK. But, you know, they know who they are with Mike Zimmer. They know who they are offensively. You know, their young secondary's gotten better. And Justin Jefferson is amazing. I, and it's really helped them not having Drew Samia in the lineup. So, you know, um, I, I guess I would pick them. Um And the 49ers are just so beat to hell. I really appreciate how much they're competing Actually, I will put the Cardinals second, but like I really appreciate how much the 49ers can compete. I actually do know. I think their schedule the rest of the way is pretty brutal, too. So I will pick them last because they're so beat up. But I appreciate what Kyle Shanahan's done with that group in a year that should be the year from hell. But they're probably going to finish 8-8 eight and eight out of sheer will because Kyle Shanahan, an elite coach, refuses to have a losing team. It, it's a hell of a job he's doing over there, man. What him and Belichick have done this year is just, it's remarkable. It's a reminder that yeah. good coaching can get you to eight and eight. Like that, <laughs> if you just have like really, really high level coaching, that might be enough. And yeah. this is kind of my last question for you, Therese. I talked about the Patriots and how impressed I've been with Belichick. 45 nothing. 45 nothing over the Chargers. I know the Chargers aren't great, man, but that should no. never happen to them. I like Anthony Lynn. I think he's a good coach. I, I wish that things were going better for him, but was yesterday kind of the nail in the coffin for him moving forward? It, 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 here's the thing. You know, I don't want to do this. I love the guy. You know, I, you know, uh, I, I, I appreciate, you know, strong coaches, and, and he's a likable guy, and everything you hear is that he's a prince, but what you, what you can't do, is get blown out at home 45-0 against a Patriots team, an offense that's clearly limited. Right, Cam Newton in the passing game isn't great. You know, the Cardinals were, were, were run. Vance Joseph was running goal line defense against them a week ago, and they still let those guys run the ball against them, and they threw it. Like, man, that's not okay. And then you're at home, and I know, like, you're beat up. I know Melvin Ingram didn't play, but guess what, man? Like, you, if you're having a year from hell, you want it to be like Miami's last year where, like, it was ugly early, but you got more competitive as the year went on. The problem with the, the Cardinals is that was a major regression. I'm sorry, the the Chargers, that was a major regression, man. Like, Justin Herbert's a talented guy, and it's tough to face Bill Belichick as a rookie quarterback. But, yeah, yeah, BK, like, you, you can't lose that poorly at home against a team like that.
Yeah, it's just I I feel for him. I, I think he's going to get another shot eventually. He should get another shot eventually. But what's happened this year? Just I I feel like that's the type of a team that has to kind of change the messaging, if nothing else. Therese, always appreciate the time, my man. People can hear you on the Yahoo NFL podcast. They should check out the Therese Paler show as well. You can check out both on the Apple podcast Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. He's a senior NFL writer for Yahoo Sports. He is Therese Paler joining us here on BK and Ferrario. Therese, always appreciate the time, my friend. We'll talk with you again soon. Yeah, man, I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Absolutely. That's Therese Paler on 101 ESPN. I feel for Anthony Lynn because I really do think he's a good coach, but some of the in-game management has just gone so poorly for him, and you can't have your rookie quarterback regressing like that. Right. You can't have him look completely lost against Bill Belichick. I know that is a tough task for any rookie but man, when you go into a game and you are clearly, in my opinion, the more talented team, you can't lose 45 to nothing with the op- op- uh, opposition beating you that way on special teams. Cam Newton threw for 69 yards and they put up 45 points. It, ca- it cannot happen. It can't happen in that game. Yeah, it's back to back weeks, too, where like Anthony Lynn went from questionable move at the end of the game to questionable moves the entire game. He is Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. We'll get to some questions and answers coming up next. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers. Want to get into this news, though, quickly to start things off. According to C. Trent Rosencrans of the uh, the Athletic Cincinnati, the Reds have made a trade. The Reds are trading Rice L. Iglesias, their closer, to the Angels for Noah Ramirez and a player to be named later. The Reds are also sending cash, according to C. Trent Rosencrans. This is a true cost-cutting measure. Rice L. Iglesias was scheduled to make $9 million this upcoming season. Noah Ramirez is get set to make $1 million. Ramirez is like your typical run-of-the-mill fine reliever. Rice Iglesias is like one of the better closers in all of baseball. Right. This signals to me the Reds are officially not going to be a contender in the NL Central next year. I don't think if you're a Cardinals fan right now today, this is the move that I think signals to you, along with the Sonny Gray rumors that have been going around over the last few days. It sounds like they're probably going to move them. I would not expect Trevor Bauer to be back. The Reds are going to go back to being the team that has a lot of power, is exciting, has the potential, but their pitching's just not going to be there if this is their plan with their rotation and now their bullpen as well. Well, yeah, think of the, the, the moves, like you just mentioned, the Sunday Gray, but on top of it, not bringing back Trevor Bauer, them saying they want a shortstop, but the shortstop probably is going to be a desire down the road. This kind of breaks out that stranglehold of the NL Central kind of standstill that we talked about earlier BK I mean you we talked about the Cubs not really knowing where they're going to go Cardinals not knowing where you're going to go but this also doesn't help the idea of offseason moves for the Cardinals in terms of upgrading because this just signifies even more that the Cardinals are going to be one of the favorites in the NL Central moving forward without any moves done it makes me wonder too um, I'm with you on the Cardinal side of things if you're the Cubs and you're seeing all of this taking place around you in the NL Central right now And you look around and you see there is no market whatsoever for you to get anything meaningful for Chris Bryant. Then why are you going to trade him? Yeah. At that point, don't you go into the season and say, you know what? 
it is what it is. We know that we should be trading these guys. And in a typical offseason, we would. But there's no market for them. Let's go try to compete. Like, if you're the Cubs, you have a real chance right now to be able to look at your division around you and say, we've there's no reason why we can't win this division mm-hmm. and it should be the end of our time right now. But I, I don't know that they're going to be able to get anything meaningful that will help them in the long term. So you might as well compete in the short term. I'll be interested to see how they view this as well. The Cardinals, it seems pretty obvious what their view is. I still don't think we have a clear indication from the Cubs what the future holds for them. 65780 is the air comfort service text line from the 314. Hey, guys, just tuned in. I noticed that it is now BK and Ferrario. What happened to Rivers? Did he get canned? <laughs> no, Jamie Rivers will officially be on the afternoon show starting today. He will be with you from two to six on the fast lane. Um, unfortunately, it's been a very rough year for everybody in terms of the revenue. And um, Chris Ranji no longer with us. We're going to miss that guy to death. Um, but Jamie Rivers is now along with Anthony Stalter and Brad Thompson and Brad Barnes, the fourth member of the fast lane. So moving forward, it is going to be Alex Ferrario and myself with you right here from 11 to 2 on 101 ESPN. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Four questions and answers from the 314. Hey, guys. Am I wrong to be optimistic about Mizzou hoops heading into the game against Illinois this weekend? Hell no. You're not wrong to be optimistic. I mean, look, Illinois, Illinois is a powerhouse right now. Like there's no question, but from what Mizzou has done and they just did it against Wichita state over the weekend, which granted this isn't the same Wichita state that we all remember with Greg Marshall, but still a damn good team. If Jeremiah Tillman can continue to play that he to me is the key for a successful season for the Missouri Tigers. If he can continue to play the way he has not take fouls, be effective underneath the hoop defensively and offensively. Frankly, I don't know a lot of teams that can challenge them, at least that are on their tier level. And I think Illinois is right about that point. So, no, you should be optimistic because if anything, you're going to get one hell of a basketball game between these two teams. I'm a little surprised to see that Mizzou was not ranked this week in the top 25. I thought they would. Um, They were not. That being said, um, Illinois is and Illinois should be. Mm -hmm. Illinois is a really good basketball team. I think this weekend is going to be very telling. I, I fully expect that this is going to be one of the better bragging rights games that we've seen yeah. in recent years. Um, Mizzou basketball is probably a fringe top 25 program right now. And if ever there was a year to have the continuity, this is the season to have it. And if you remember, if you're a college basketball fan, you'll probably remember this team. But a few years ago, Xavier Sneet, St. Louisan, was a significant piece to a K-State squad that went to the Elite Eight. This Mizzou team reminds me of that Elite 8K State team, and not in that I think they're going to make that kind of a run, but in the way that if things fall their way, I think they can make a little bit of a run in the tournament because they do have the right mix of senior and junior leadership on this team. It's going to be a big drop-off going into next season, but they have some real talent on the roster right now. Think about what you said, though. A fringe top 25 team. Illinois, obviously a top 25 team. Slew a top 25 team. You got three top 25 teams right now or should be top 25 teams in the market. It's incredible to be able to say in college basketball. Yeah, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch and bragging rights actually matters, which for us here in St. Louis is something that we haven't been able to say in a long time. By the way, Slew also right around the top 25. This is this is about as good as we've seen college basketball here mm-hmm. locally. Slew, Illinois, Mizzou, 
all very, very likely um, going to be in the tournament this season. And all three have reasons to believe that they can make a run once they get to the tournament. Without question. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up next, Jesse Rogers is an MLB insider for ESPN.com. He's located and based in Chicago. What does he expect the Cubs to do this offseason? And what is the market going to look like for Kyle Schwarber? We'll ask Jesse Rogers when he joins us coming up next on 101 ESPN. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Excited to go out to the Brownie and Crouppen celebrity line. Jesse Rogers of ESPN.com, where he is an MLB insider joining us here on the show. Jesse, always appreciate the time, man. Some breaking news in baseball. It looks like the NL Central uh, is going the way that a lot of us thought it was going to. Rysel Iglesias, the Reds have decided to trade him in a cost-cutting move to the Angels. Is this an indication to you, Jesse, that as we move forward here, this is there anybody in this division that you expect to actually spend significant money this offseason? I mean, you can never count out the Cardinals, right? They, they, they every so often will jump up and spend some, some dough. So I'm not, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say no to them because they can surprise you every so often, but I don't think anybody else in the division is certainly not the team that has the most normally. And that's the Chicago Cubs. They're not going to, and I mean, we know the Pirates aren't. Um, Milwaukee, Milwaukee almost never does. So uh, maybe your Cardinals do, only because they can surprise once in a while. But it has to be the right deal in the moment, like Goldschmidt kind of turned into. Uh, but in general, no. And I, I agree with Buster. Only just tweeted the NL Central is all about cost-cutting uh, situation. It's it's the race to who can save the most more than the race to win the division. So when you say the Cardinals then, Jesse, I mean, how much of their spending money are trying to upgrade? Because everyone knows that the Cardinals need to upgrade offensively. How much of that is, is dictated by if there's going to be a DH in the National League? Well, I don't know about the spending part, but um, it, it's certainly in terms of roster construction important to know. I, I don't know if a team is necessarily going to spend more knowing they have the DH. It just adds another element to their team that they have to deal with, but it doesn't really raise the payroll unless you know that you're getting fans back in the stands. I mean, the Cardinals and Cubs have that in common. Ticket revenue, ticket attendance is huge for them, uh, both teams. And it's certainly certainly important to know as soon as you can what that situation is going to be like. Um, I think, you know, maybe Missouri may be ahead of the game in terms of fans back in stands over Illinois, or maybe the commissioner is going to make a blanket statement. It's all or nothing. I don't know. We saw them allow fans at the World Series, so that was good. I assume each state's going to be a little different. Um, but the sooner the Cardinals, the sooner the Cubs know about fans in the stands, that's when budgets and payrolls can really be set for 21. How soon do you expect, Jesse, that we're going to have some sort of an indication, like definitively, one way or the other on the DH and on the roster numbers? Because as of today, we still don't know how many players are going to be on the active roster and whether or not an NL team is going to be able to use the DH. Do you think we're going to get any sort of word on that this week at the quote-unquote winter meetings? You know, I could say yes and easily be wrong about that because it should have happened already. It should have happened before the non-tender deadline. I've talked to many executives. I mean, it should have happened a week after the season ended, right? Teams start their conversations within their within their own organizations and, and with other teams right away. And how do you not know if there's a DH? And how do you not know your roster size? Um, the Rule 5 draft is this week. That, that 
you need to figure out. So I, I, I wish the answer, oh, yeah, they're going to get it done in the next day or two. But the real answer is it's all going to be one press release. It's all combined, like the DH, the roster. It's all one negotiation. It is not going to be piecemeal. Um, and that negotiation really hasn't taken place. Uh, there's a give and take here. The league wants something in return if they're going to keep the DH during a year where the CBA isn't up, right? Next year, they'll negotiate everything. But right now, we're between CBA agreements. They did it for the shortened season. Um, but the league wants something in return to add uh, a, a, a big time, you know, potential payday for 15 players in the NL, right? So the all, and then the roster size, same thing. It's all one negotiation. And man, if, unless it happens quickly, and if it's uh, and unless it's been happening very quietly and quickly behind the scenes, I don't know. I can't foresee exactly when that's going to be. You would hope by the Rule Five draft because roster sizes really matter there. But man, I, I think the DH needed to be just decided before the non-tender draft. I mean, the Cubs, for example, they non-tendered Kyle Schwarber. If they knew there was a DH, do they tender him? Probably not. It was mostly about money. But that's a decision that you you could be helped by knowing if there's a DH or not. We're talking to Jesse Rogers of ESPN.com here on on, uh, BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Still getting used to the new name of the show. Uh, Jesse did want to ask you about the Cubs because here in St. Louis, we have certainly talked plenty about this division as a whole and the Kyle Schwarber situation. What's going to happen moving forward with Chris Bryant? If you were in charge of the Cubs right now, I know it's all about uh, cost-cutting measures, but is there any realistic scenario of them just holding on to the assets, basically standing pat and saying, you know what, we're not going to get anything for these guys, and with the division being what it is this year, they feel like they can win it. Is is there a chance that they just kind of stand pat this offseason and potentially even play to win the division next year? Well, I, I, yes, there's a chance only because they did it last year. Uh, they didn't like what they heard, and they, they stood pat. And um, I think a lot would have happened July 31st to the Cubs if it was a normal season. In this case, they got off to a great start, and, and obviously it was hard to make trades with the, with the shutdown and then the pandemic. So um, I, the answer is they don't want to do that. They don't want to stand pat. They've got four uh, well, now three major names going to free agency next year. You know, Schwarber would have been one of them. Baez right now, Rizzo, Bryant, they can't let them all walk for nothing. So they're going to have to get 50 cents on the dollar. And on top of that, their offense stinks. So you can't afford them, and they're not very good collectively. Individually, a lot of people would want, obviously, Chris Bryant, Anthony Rizzo, Javi Baez, Wilson Contreras. But for some reason, collectively, it's not working. The answer to that is a much longer, you know, uh, discussion, but mostly it's, it's because they're the same kind of hitter. And so the same type of pitcher can get them out. If you can spin the ball, you can get the Cubs out in 2020. If you could throw a fastball, you could get the Cubs out. Well, spinning the ball and throwing fastball. I don't know what else there is besides spinning the ball and throwing fastballs. So the Cubs are really easy to get out. Um, so I don't think they want to stand pat for monetary reasons, for, for, for legitimate baseball reasons. And you know what? I, I'd almost do the mini rebuild, retool now anyway. Who knows what next season's going to look like? Uh, you, you, you can you can slide by in 21. People are worried about their jobs, out looking elsewhere. Like no one's holding Jed Hoyer, Jed Hoyer's feet to the fire. His first year as president during a pandemic. If the Cubs don't win the World Series, that that's my opinion, right? They just won one a few years ago. What do you expect? Another one within a hundred years? So. 
I, I, I would I would retool or even do a mini rebuild if I was the Cubs. Let someone else win the division next year. Jesse, I'm curious what your expectations are from this week of the winter meetings, because if people don't know, like these winter meetings are, are laying the groundwork for moves in the offseason. It's pretty rare that you see a lot of moves once you get into the winter meetings. But do you feel like that's going to be different or do you feel like it's going to be more quiet through these winter meetings? No, I think it'll be more quiet. It will be not because they're virtual necessarily, because, I mean, look, uh, executives don't really need to be in the same hotel to get things done nowadays, right? I mean, with the advent of Zoom even, they can, they can still see each other, make sure they're telling the truth to each other uh, if they really need to do that instead of getting on the phone. So it's not about that. It's about what I said before, using the attendance as an example. Teams are going to move slowly. Um, for the most part, because there's uncertainty about 21. Again, roster size, DH, attendance, all these things are up in the air. Now, I do think there will be an occasion where a team will be aggressive, and I, I, that's more than likely going to be a contending team or the Mets. You know, And the Mets are actually a contending team, but because of the new ownership. So when you see teams move a little bit more quickly, like the Angels today, I think that's because they have some urgency. I think um, – any team like the Cubs or Cardinals that's waiting it out has other thoughts than winning on their mind right now. Now, in January, that might change. Later in December, when we get more rule changes and budgets and payrolls, but I think it's going to move slowly because there's so much uncertainty more than the fact that it's a virtual winter meetings. We're talking to Jesse Rogers of ESPN.com here on 101 ESPN. Just a couple questions left for him here today. Uh, Jesse, for the non-tender guys and here in St. Louis, the ones that are most interesting to us, of course, are Schwarber, Eddie Rosario, David Dahl, the, the, the power bats that have officially hit the market. How much of a market do you expect them to have this offseason? Do you think they're going to be able to get reasonable deals coming off of those non-tenders? Reasonable, yeah. I mean, reasonable. Um, and it's not unheard of that they might get a couple years out of a deal, right? But it, it's going to be reasonable in the pandemic era, right? That no one's breaking the bank that got non-tendered. Um, but, I, you know, I'm, I, I covered Kyle Schwarber a lot. Could Kyle Schwarber get two years at $15 million, $14 million. Yeah, sure, he could get a couple years, but that's not the security a guy like him was thinking about when he helped them win a World Series, right? So I will say left-handers, uh, especially that have a little pop, there's always a market for them. But, but again, it's not going to be some bidding war for any of these guys that got non-tendered. It is a buyer's market. There's more inventory out there than normal, not, and actually maybe even a little less than people thought. I mean, I talked to an agent that thought there'd be 80 non-tenders. There was more like 50 or so. so. But there's still a lot of free agents out there. So teams, especially the aggressive ones, are going to be able to pick some players up. You've already seen some maybe under market deals. Uh, but man, I, I, I feel for teams like the Cubs and Cardinals that, that rely on attendance and they just don't know what their revenues are going to be next year. Now I don't feel bad for them. I'm just, they have plenty of money. They're worth a lot. But I'm just saying in general, you know, these are three you know, the Cardinals, especially 3 million in the, in the house, second in attendance almost every year. And you just don't know. Um, but it'll certainly be better than 2020 because, because there will be fans and maybe even full capacity at some point. So, there's a market, but it's all going to be sort of, you know, what you'd expect during the pandemic. You know, six million, one year, six million, two years, twelve million, that kind of stuff for these guys. 
Jesse, if I put you in John Mosaylock's job right now and I said, Jesse, you can add one bat to this Cardinals lineup. And I'm going to let's operate under the assumption that there is a universal designated hitter next year, because I think that makes the question a little bit more interesting. Who would be the bat that you would add to this lineup? Let's say I, I'm giving you as the owner of the team five, seven million dollars on a one year deal. Who's the guy that you would look at in this market that you think could be interesting to add to the Cardinals lineup? Well, give me a few more dollars than that because, <laughs> I, and I'm chuckling because the guy I would add would be Marcelo Zuna. <laughs> that's that's at least one of them that that comes to mind, right? Uh, I mean, what a year he had last year, and you guys know all about him. Um, that's who I would I would probably add. I, and, and frankly, it, usually I'm always thinking about the lefties, as I said before. The, I, you know, I don't know if the average fan thinks about it, but. The game is really you, – you have to have a couple left-handed power hitters in your lineup. Left-handed power pitchers, left-handed power hitters. You have to have it, um, if not more. Um, but the Cardinals probably could use offense wherever they could get it, right? Um, I love what they do on the pitching. They have this pitching infrastructure going back 100 years, the Cardinals. Um, but I, that, that's the thing that comes to mind. Uh, Marcelo Zuna, I would, I would bring him back. Jesse, always appreciate the time, man. All the best to you and the family. We look forward to reading your work over on ESPN.com and following you on Twitter at Jesse Rogers ESPN. Thanks so much for hopping on with us today, man. You got to be safe. Happy holidays and just get ready for a long baseball offseason. You got it. Same to you. That's Jesse Rogers here on 101 ESPN. Man, th- th- I would love for this team to be able to go out and add a significant bat but I just don't see any way that they go that far into the market. I was expecting him to say like the typical name that we hear Jock Peterson or uh, David Dahl, right. somebody like that. And then he goes out there and Marcelo says, Hey, go ahead and add Marcelo Zuna, the guy who probably will make about 10, 11 million dollars this off season. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure the Cardinals are just going <laughs> to venture into that market. Well, he did bring back Tommy fam. He did mention though, Hey, every team needs a left-handed power bat. And Alex, I know that you don't want to talk about him, but the guy that continues to make all of the sense in the world for this Cardinals team is Jock Peterson. From day one, he has been the guy that makes all of the sense, especially if there is a designated hitter because he's a lefty. He hits righties really well. He's a power bat. We've seen him do it in the postseason. You can platoon him in the outfield with Harrison Bader. And I don't think he's going to get a massive deal. I think you could sign him to one year, six, seven million dollars. You move forward and hopefully he ends up having a good season. He can inflate his market for next year, get a multi-year deal somewhere. And the Cardinals get exactly what they need out of him before going out there. And hopefully, fingers crossed, spending in that bigger market next offseason when you have all of the stud shortstops that are available. But if you're going to do Jack Peterson and he's going to cost you somewhere between five and six, why not do David Dahl and he's going to cost you two million? Because I think Jock Peterson is more certain. I think Jock Peterson, you you know what you're getting from him. Whereas David Dahl, there is f- certainly more upside there. But the problem is you've got upside players. Where's the certainty coming from? And that's what we've talked so much about in recent years. You got to find a way to have some more certainty in this lineup. And I don't think David Dahl provides it. It's just hard to see Jock Peterson as certainty for this lineup too, though. I mean, like he was certain in the postseason. He's certain for like weeks 
but he's not certain for 162 games in your lineup. I think I know exactly what he is. I think he's a 25 to 30 home run hitter. He's going to hit 250 for you. He's going to get on base at a 330 clip, and that's that's who he is. And you can take it or leave it. You can love it or hate it, but that's that's who the guy has been. That's who he's going to be, I think, moving forward. Um, and that's that's the type of player that he's going to be in Major League Baseball. Um, I, I just think that's it. Meanwhile, with David Dahl, I, I don't know if he's going to play. I don't know if he's going to be out there. And if and when he were to get hurt, you're back to the Tyler O'Neill and Lane Thomas experience. And I don't know that that's something that I'm going to sign up for I'll, again. I'll die on this hill. I'm out on Jack Peterson. It's 1217. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers and officially licensed Rolex Jewelers. 65780 is the air comfort service tax line. In or out is coming up next. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's Ribs and BK on 101 ESPN. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line. It's time for In or Out. Did I say Ribs and BK? I think you did. It's time for In or Out on BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Look, just get used to it. It's going to happen at least five or six times this week. I set the over-under at like five and a half yeah. for today alone. And I take the over. I think I've done, I've almost done it twice. I think that was the first time that I've actually done it so far today. So I so far, I'm pacing to be better than I expected. Let's start with this one. In or out, Greg Williams was actually in on the Jets tanking job yesterday. Oh, I'm 100% in on this. How the hell, like anybody, anybody knew what that play was going to be. A Hail Mary to the fastest player on the field. It was either going to be Ruggs or Darren Waller. And you knew that was coming. Greg Williams was doing everything he could to keep his job because he's like, hey, what does this ownership want? This ownership wants the number one overall pick. They want the guy who probably doesn't even want to come to play here. And I'm going to make sure that they get that. If you missed it yesterday, here's what it sounded like as at the very end of the game, time is expiring. The Jets are up. Vegas has one more opportunity. They throw the Hail Mary. Here's what it sounded like. Jets coming. Carr put some air under it. Wide open is Rex for the touchdown. Miraculous. (laughs) That was via CBS. The Raiders win the game. Greg Williams decided to send eight pass rushers, which is better known as a cover zero blitz. Basically, that means everybody's in man to man and you've got everybody. If you ever played Madden, it's an engage eight. Yeah. Where you've got everybody rushing at the quarterback. Do it all the time. There's literally an ESPN database. ESPN's database. Never been a team that did what the Jets did yesterday in that situation. It's never happened before. And so as much as I'd like to say this is just Greg Williams being Greg Williams and blitzing when nobody else feels like they should be blitzing. I feel like this had to be in on the tank. Oh, yeah. And by the way, Greg Williams has since been fired. Justifiably so. He got the call earlier today. He is no longer going to be the Jets defensive coordinator. Just insanity by them. But... In the end, they got exactly what they wanted. They need Trevor Lawrence going into next season. That's been the goal since day one for the Jets. And this helped them accomplish that goal. So good on Greg Williams for that. And frankly, I'm wondering if Greg Williams was keeping track of what was going on with Jacksonville and Minnesota. And he was thinking, boy, this is how we solidify this number one pick. Let's blow this one out of the water. Jacksonville wins it. And then we are smooth sailing the rest of the way. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for in or out. In or out. 
It is officially time for the Philadelphia Eagles to bench Carson Wentz. Here's what Ryan Clark of ESPN had to say about that earlier today. Doug Peterson, you start him. And if it doesn't work out, then fine. At least you made a change. At least you showed your team that play matters. And if it works out, then you have a decision to make in the future. But it's no decision to make about the quarterback of the Philadelphia Eagles next week because that guy has to be Jalen Hurts. I understand where Ryan Clark's coming from. Carson Wentz was bad yesterday. He finished the day six for 15 for 79 yards. Jalen Hurts was fine. He had 110 yards through the air, a touchdown pick. He wasn't great, though. I would just say if you're the Eagles, this is the point of no return. If you decide to go this route, if Jalen Hurts ends up being your starter next week, you have to be fully committed to Carson Wentz no longer being your quarterback. Because once you go down this path, it's kind of like the Ryan Fitzpatrick one, right? Down in mm-hmm. Miami. If you go from Ryan Fitzpatrick to Tua, Tua's your guy. And you're not going back to Ryan Fitzpatrick, barring some sort of injury, which is what we've seen. But once he's healthy again, Tua's got to be the starter. I think it's the same thing in Philadelphia. If Carson Wentz ends up getting benched, you have to commit yourself to Jalen Hurts being your starter the rest of the season and then figuring out the quarterback position this offseason because Carson Wentz can no longer be the starter in Philadelphia if you decide to go this route. In or out, Ferrario, it's time for the Eagles to bench Carson Wentz. I'm in on benching them. I've been on benching them, or benching Carson Wentz for a really long time. And, I, you know, I get what we've talked about in the past of, There's a lot more to blame than just the quarterback, but every single time it looks like Carson Wentz is lost out there. And I know he doesn't have the same offensive line. I know he doesn't have the greatest receivers, but you can't look that lost. There are worse quarterbacks that have worse teams that are having success than what Carson Wentz is doing right now in Philadelphia. So I'm in on the benching. I don't know what the hell you do with it, though. I mean, we've talked about it. You have 30 plus million dollars. It's just going to be sitting on your bench. That is going to stunt the opportunity for you to upgrade anywhere on this team. So you might be just an NFL hell for a while. I think that the Eagles might be in a full-blown rebuild next year. It seems possible that they have a restart at quarterback, a restart at head coach, and it might even be the general manager gets canned as well as a result of all of this. Because when you have a quarterback that fails, that is the easiest way for everybody in the organization to be on the way out as a result. So if I'm... If I'm having to answer the question directly, is it time for the Eagles to bench Carson Wentz? I think the answer is yes. And I think that also means that it is time to move in a new direction. Doug Peterson won them the Super Bowl. And I think they've got to move on from him. And I think it might be time to look at Howie Roseman as your GM as well, well and decide to move on there. Nick Foles won them the Super Bowl. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 65780 is the air comfort service tax slide for in or out from the 636 guys in or out. The entire NL Central is not planning to compete in this upcoming season. I'm out on this. Uh, I think there. I think the two teams that are going to compete are the Cubs and the Cardinals, because like we've just mentioned and we just talked about with Jesse Rogers, Cubs are just going to either hold on to what they got or they're going to try and get something back for it, which right now it sure as hell seems like they're going to hold on to it. Cardinals, even if they don't upgrade, are still one of the best teams in that division. And frankly, I can make the argument that even with the move that we found out today from the Cincinnati Reds of trading Rancio Iglesias are still better than the Pirates and the Brewers that you could make a case for them pushing for a wild card spot if they opened that one up. There are a lot more better teams, but I'm out on not being competitive. Look, you're not going to be competitive with the Dodgers and the Mets. 
but you're going to be competitive in the sense of winning your division. And I think that's what the end goal is, at least for this upcoming season. Is anybody, let's do this real quick as kind of a, a thought experiment. Is anybody in the NL Central going to be better than the Dodgers next year? No. Agreed. The Padres? Nope. The Braves? Nope. The Mets? I'll say maybe, but only if they continue to do what they do and not upgrade. I'm going to say no. That's already four teams definitively better than anybody in the NL Central, and I haven't mentioned the Phillies, uh, the Nationals, the Marlins, who were pretty decent (laughs) this year, the Giants, who very well may go out there and spend this offseason. I think the answer to this question is I'm in. I don't think anybody in the NL Central is planning to compete at that level. Now, competing for the division is different. You could win 85 games, and that might be enough for you this season. I saw Dane Perry of CBS Sports said this on Twitter a little bit ago. It's pretty easy in a division like this to distinguish yourself with just a modicum of investment, especially if you're Chicago, St. Louis, or uh, Cincinnati, but it appears that nobody is willing to do this. Dane Perry continued. Tightly bunched divisions are truly exciting only when there's underlying quality within that division. A dash to 83 wins doesn't do it for most people. And I think that's what the NL Central is quickly becoming. The Reds have indicated to everybody they're slashing payroll. The Brewers are doing the same. If the Cubs start selling off pieces, that will be them signifying the same thing. And so then if you're John Mosellock and the goal is as simple as just winning the division, there is no incentive for him to add payroll to this team. Because if the Cubs, the Reds, the Brewers go the route that they're all signifying right now, the Cardinals will then be basically the best of whatever is in the division, even if they are an 83, 84, 85 win team. So I'm kind of in on this. I don't think anybody in this division is really planning to compete at a high level, although competing for the division won't require that. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just going to put the motai on for a second. But if you win your division... Isn't that competing in the eyes of the front office and management? Because you're going to get into the first round no matter what. And as we've seen in the past, anything can happen in the playoffs and you can win your first round and get to the NLCS. Anything can't happen, though. The, the Cardinals aren't talented enough to have the any given Sunday approach. And if if they decided to add a big bat to the lineup, then maybe I could be in that discussion with you. But as of today, like we always bring up the 2006 and 2011 runs, right? Mm-hmm. Well, those teams were unbelievably talented relative to what we're watching right now. They right. had superstars on those rosters. The Cardinals right now basically have two stars on their team. It's Paul Goldschmidt and Jack Flaherty at, based on what they've done right now. So if they add another to that mix, okay, we can talk about it. But at the cur- as the roster is currently constructed, I, I, you can go ahead and miss me with the any given Sunday, anything can happen once you get in. I, I don't think that's the case. You don't want team. the speech? Yeah. Scratch and claw your way. <laughs> nope. I'm good on that for right now. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's uh, BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESP. And that's going to be really tough for me for the next couple of days. Coming up next, is Jordan Bennington the St. Louis Blue with the most to gain? In 2021, we'll give you our answer to that. We want to hear from you. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. We'll dive into that coming up next on 101 ESPN. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's Ribs. 
No, it's not. You BK want- and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. I need to have the take twos immediately available. <laughs> it was so right? close. <laughs> I was so close to having success today. We get an hour and a half in and all things have gone to hell. That's what happens. 12 what o'clock. 12 o'clock. Um, so Jordan Bennington. We've talked a lot about him, what he did in the bubble, what he didn't do in the bubble. And I was reading yesterday, the Hockey News put out their rankings of the top 10 goalies of the NHL. Bennington came in on that list at number 10 overall. Here's what they wrote about Jordan Bennington. Quote, his incredible ascent from the AHLs to Stanley Cup champion in 2019 is the stuff of legends. He is not that uh, going to be that good all the time, but he needs to be a lot better than he was in last year's playoff flameout. End quote. Again, that coming from the Hockey News, who put him at number 10 overall among the best goalies in the NHL. Ferrario, I wanted to talk about Bennington a bit today because I feel like he is the singular blue that probably has the most to gain or lose based on what he does this season. And the reason why I say that, because somebody on the text line has a really good point from the 314. The guy that they say has the most to gain is Robert Thomas. I think it's fair to say that Robert Thomas is the one that can change the expectations moving forward the most. But Robert Thomas is already under contract for Mm -hmm. the following season. Jordan Bennington is a free agent. After the upcoming year. And so suddenly you've got a decision to make on Jordan Bennington based on what he does this year as your goalie. And the upcoming contract is likely going to be determined whether he gets a big time payout or another type of a bridge deal or not brought back at all is likely going to be determined by how he plays this season. So if he's really good again and returns to 2018, 2019 form, Suddenly, you're talking about him as a franchise goalie and somebody that you build around. But if he's not, now the Blues are going to have to ask themselves some serious questions after this upcoming season. Yeah, the biggest difference, too, between Thomas and Bennington is Thomas didn't regress last season. Like, Thomas continued to get better. Jordan Bennington, in a lot of people's opinions, took a step backwards last season, mostly because of what happened in the postseason Honestly, when I when I saw this list, BK, I originally was really surprised that he was number ten. Like too I think, high or too low? In I your thought opinion. it was too low. I thought he should be at least six, seven, or eight right now. Especially if you look at Ben Bishop's name on here. And if we're going off of top ten best goaltenders right now, Ben Bishop's been unable to stay healthy for an entire season for the Dallas Stars. Uh, Carter Hart's name's on here, who's a young goaltender for the Philadelphia Flyers. He's kind of in the same boat as Jordan Bennington, where he's had success, but he hasn't had success overall. At least Bennington has won the cup. I'm really amazed that they've dropped him just from what happened in the bubble, because what people don't remember is this guy was a 30 game winner for the Blues this past season. And that was a lot of games played for Jordan Bennington after a basically no offseason winning the Stanley Cup. I mean, that's a lot of games played by 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 the goaltender. But on top of that, even in the bubble. His play against Vancouver was bad, but to get to Vancouver and those those round robin games he played in, he was the only reason that the Blues were even in the consideration for those games because the team in front of him was bad. So I think people jump to conclusions with Bennington thinking this guy's been terrible last season and he's going to be bad again because he frankly had a very unnatural season to season when it comes to winning the cup, no off season, and then a season last year. Yeah, he wasn't terrible last year, 
But he also wasn't great. I mean, let's be honest about the performance. He was 27th in the league in save percentage over the course of the regular season. He dipped from 1.9 goals against on average to 2.6 goals against on average. That's not a bad year. It's perfectly fine. It's adequate. But for a guy that we're talking about as a top 10 goalie, that is based more on what he did in the 2019 part of the 2018-2019 season than it was what he did last year in his 50 games. He was fine. He was solid. Pretty good even. But he wasn't the guy that we talked about as being the savior for the Blues the previous year. So I think that seems about right to me. And I think the question for the Blues is going to be after this upcoming year, where does he belong? Because we are going to see a lot of Jordan Bennington this year. It's not going to be the Jake Allen show at any point. There's never going to be a discussion of should the blues go with Jake Allen, Jake Allen here? Should they go with Jordan Bennington? No. Ville Husso is not that caliber of a goalie. We don't know what he's going to be this upcoming season. We don't know if he's even going to be ready for this. Bennington is the true one with a bullet. There is no one, a one B situation. So for me, I think he stands, somebody on the text line said this well, Bennington might not have the most to gain, but he definitely has uh, the most to lose. I think that's a good way to look at this. If he does not live up to expectations this upcoming season, I'm going to be really interested to see what the Blues decide to do there because there is no real fallback option for them. I don't know what the plan B is if Bennington doesn't live up to those expectations. Well, that's why I think he doesn't have a lot to lose because frankly, if, if he has a abnormal season like if this is a normal year for Bennington where he went 25 30 games and kind of what he was last year for you well there's no other uh, there's no option B like unless Ville Husso shows that he's the number one goaltender you can't go from Bennington and say oh well Jordan thanks for the two years you're a free agent we're not going to give you a contract he's going to be back because you don't have any other options at goaltender what he has to lose is the amount of money he's going to get paid. Yep. Are you going to go up or are you going to stay right where you're at? Because I think that's the decision that Doug Armstrong's going to come down to with Bennington. Frankly, I'm surprised at how many people view Bennington differently now than what they did in 2019 when he wins the cup. Because we went from him winning the cup where people are looking at this guy saying, this is a franchise goaltender. This is the goaltender that the Blues have been waiting for for so long. And then he play, he plays in the regular season. Not great. Wins 30 games, though, top three in the league, and then struggles in the bubble, which, look, a lot of people struggled in that bubble to to take that time off and then go back to it. And again, the team in front of him was bad. I still view this guy as somebody who can be a franchise goaltender. I just don't know if people are, if you're setting your expectations for what he did in 2018-19, you're going to be upset no matter what, because I don't know if anybody can live up to what they did in that short time frame. So kind of what you're referencing there, J.R., Jeremy Rutherford, our guy, Blues Insider for The Athletic and 101 ESPN, had a piece yesterday on The Athletic about a bunch of uh, poll questions that he asked to fans, and he got some of the results back. And he asked, Jordan Bennington is entering the final year of his two-year $8 million, $8.5 million contract. How do you, as a Blues fan, view his future? 19% of Blues fans say he's a franchise goalie and he will no doubt be resigned. Only 19%. 78% say he's above average, and it's likely that he ends up re-signed next offseason. And then 3% say he was a flash in the pan, he's not going to be re-signed. So we can go ahead and throw that one out. Basically, it's 80% of Blues fans believe that Jordan Bennington is an above-average goaltender, and 20% say he's a franchise goalie. 
What do you, in, in terms of the differentiating factor there, what do you need to see this season from Jordan Bennington to believe after this upcoming season, he is no doubt, without a doubt, 80% of the fan base is going to be on board. He is a franchise goalie. Or is there something that he can do this year, realistically speaking? I, I don't know if there's something you can do to make yourself look like a franchise goalie unless you go out there and win another Stanley Cup, which I don't know if those are realistic expectations to put on Jordan Bennington. But I think if he hasn't... Look, this is the first normal season season Bennington's going to have like this is the first time he's not going to have to go from Stanley Cup basically playing from January all the way to June and then having from June to August and then you're back at it again like it was a very abnormal season I think if you see what Bennington did last year in the regular season of 30 wins somewhere around a 2.5 goals against average and helps this team get to the postseason he's proven to be a franchise goaltender for you because he's not a Vasilevsky but he's also not what you've gone through with a Halak and an Elliott and a Jake Allen. He can win the games for you. But I also think he's going to have to adjust because the one thing we learned, BK, about Bennington in that bubble was that people found out his weaknesses. They started to shoot top shelf on him, and he was unable to adjust. It's going to really come down to an adjustment for Jordan Bennington for a lot of people to jump back on that boat of this is the future goaltender for the Blues. I think he stands the most to gain and lose this upcoming yeah. year, both in terms of financially and for the Blues. The the, the answers to this question are super meaningful long-term in some of their plans as well because if he ends up, it's the affirmative, and he's a clear franchise goalie. Okay, well... That probably impacts your decision of whether or not to bring back Jaden Schwartz in terms of what you have monetarily underneath the salary cap. If he doesn't, well, now you got to find out what the plan is for you at goalie going into the upcoming season. There's a lot that is on the line based on the results, the performance of Jordan Bennington in this upcoming year. I think that's probably for me the number one question that I'd like to see answered this year. There's some other questions from that article from Jeremy Rutherford that we'll get into later on today. But coming up next... Time to dive into the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Let's dive into the junk drawer. All right, Alex. So I have been sitting at home lately and Kara, my fiance, along with her mother, have been watching a lot of the Lifetime movies. They've been sucked into these things. It's basically a nonstop, terribly acted Christmas movie all yep. day long from start to finish. Are you a consumer I, of the Lifetime original movies? I am not a consumer, but I am a, uh, a uh, passenger consumer because <laughs> Mrs. Ferrario, Katie, is obsessed with these Hallmark movies. I don't understand it. Obsessed. I got to be honest with you. I don't either. I. It's the same movie over and over with different actors and actresses that all look the same, sound the same, yep. and end up having basically the same roles. And the storylines are the exact same in every single one of them. But people love them for whatever reason. Well, there is a new Lifetime original movie that is coming out. It is called A Recipe for Seduction. I don't know if you've seen anything about this, Alex. I have, unfortunately. But it it is starring Mario Lopez as... Colonel Sanders of KFC. There is going to be a new Lifetime movie that is featuring the Saved by the Bell star, um, Mario Lopez, as Colonel Sanders. It is based on the founder of KFC. 
I am just going to ask the question that I'm sure everybody is wondering. Did we need a movie yeah. based on Colonel Sanders' life? That, well, that's what I'm kind of wondering. Like, wh- one, why, when did KFC become this popular to where we needed to be <laughs> making movies about it? And two, how all of a sudden did Colonel Sanders become this sexy icon that we need to make a seduction film about? Because, what? correct me if I'm wrong, BK, but all of the Colonel Sanders we've seen on television all are very frightening. Yes. Um, also, I can remember growing up, like the thing you would do when you go to those KFC um, stores, you you would sit on Colonel Sanders' lap. Yeah, I had no Which idea. Is a weird thing in itself. This was a seduction thing that Mario Lopez was eventually going to play that character. Does that change your entire life now, knowing that you sat on Colonel Sanders' lap? It makes me question some of my decisions growing up. I got to be honest with you. I just. I'm wondering who came into the room one day and was like, you know what? (laughs) What about, and hear me out here, (laughs) a movie about Colonel Sanders and wait for it. Mario Lopez is going to play Colonel Mm. Sanders. I mean, also like the title, I think we could have done something different. Like we could have done like 50 shades of spices. Right? That would have been good. Better than 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 what? Purse or recipe for seduction? I kind of like the title actually. It's it's just weird. I wonder do you think Colonel Sanders signed off on this or somebody from KFC decided to sign off on this? Okay, and this is the other part that caught me. Maybe this is just because I'm young. I didn't even know Colonel Sanders was a real person. <laughs> I thought Colonel Sanders was a, was like a, a I thought Colonel Sanders was a Ronald McDonald. And then I find out that Colonel Sanders is apparently a real person, and there's a story about this guy. Where where are we? I thought this was just a a family chicken place that we could go to and enjoy some some wonderful Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I was unaware that his recipe was was made for seduction. I didn't know that he had a story that was so interesting that we, uh, we needed it in the form of a Lifetime movie. But here we are. If you're interested, if your uh, wife is interested, it is going to debut on Sunday at noon on Lifetime. So if you want to watch the games instead, uh, I totally understand. Make sure you hit that record button on Lifetime <laughs> I, to I be able to get you a little bit of uh, a recipe for seduction. In I your life. can't speak for Kara. So Kara, if you're listening, you know, you got, you do what you need to do. But Katie, if you're listening, this will not be a thing. We will not watch Recipe for Seduction. The tagline for the movie is, quote, we all have our secrets. His just happens to be a recipe for seduction. Ooh. Sunday at noon on Lifetime. Okay. It was kind of sexy. And now I want to go watch it now. OK, <laughs> up for us today so, for so BK, have you ever um, have you ever seen interviews with some type of celebrity and, and nobody realized it was a celebrity? So like you'll see sometimes I'll interview him and be like, who the hell is this guy? And they'll just interview him as a common person. I remember a few years ago in uh, San Francisco, somebody interviewed Clay Thompson as he was going through like scaffolding, <laughs> there was like construction going on in downtown San Francisco. Right. And they, it, the, the, the tagline on the bottom, right? The cryon basically said like man walking through downtown <laughs> San Francisco. <laughs> it just happened to be Clay Thompson, the star shooting guard for the <laughs> Golden State Warriors. And they were asking him his, his thoughts on the downtown development in San Francisco. So yeah, I love these things. So this happened over the weekend in Boston. Now, if you don't know, named Jerome, 
McGinley. He's a Hockey Hall of Famer, soon to be Hockey Hall of Famer, longtime NHL player, played for the Boston Bruins for mm-hmm. a couple of seasons. Well, he was in Boston driving through, and there were really bad weather. It was snow showers, flurries. Like that was what the news was covering. Next thing you know, a television news station in Boston is interviewing Jerome McGinley <laughs> at a a rest stop, and his tagline underneath was "local commuter." That's amazing. And, and so they were like, they were just looking for anybody that was yeah. going through what is their equivalent of quick trip. Right. And they were like, hey, let, let's go, go walk up to that guy. Yeah. He seems. Uh, this guy over here. He's clearly driving, passing through town right now. Let's get his thoughts on the weather. Right yeah. Now. And I watched the interview and this. So what do you think of this inter- this weather in Boston? Have you ever seen anything like this? And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, I used to live here and it's it's uh, it's pretty insane. And the blah, blah, blah. And they they never realized that this guy played for the Boston Bruins as a hockey hall of fame. That's incredible. I love every second of that. 65780 is the air comfort service tax line from the 636. BK, when you're watching these Hallmark movies, are you also having a margarita and a wine cooler? No, I'm having a seltzer. That's how this goes. That's exactly what we're having. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Coming up next, we have some of our first projected salaries from the non-tender list. And Ferrario... I think there's one guy that makes a hell of a lot of sense after seeing some of these salaries. We'll tell you who that is coming up on 101 ESPN. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. I do think there are good players on the market who can be had for a reasonable value, but like I would be stunned to see the Cardinals, you know, like going after JT Real Muto to replace, you know, Yachty or George Springer or something like that. They're just they're just not gonna do that, it seems. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line from the 314. Excuse me for coming in late, but I just heard that this is BK and Ferrario. Is Jamie Rivers no longer a part of the show? If you haven't heard uh, today or on Friday, there have been some changes at the station, unfortunately. Uh, Chris Ranji no longer with us. But as a result of that, we're going to miss both of these guys, uh, both here on the show with Jamie and with Ranji no longer a a part of the station. Jamie is moving to the fast lane. He is going to join Anthony Stalter and Brad Thompson along with Brad Barnes. So Jamie Rivers now on the fast lane from two to six. It will be myself, BK and Alex. Ferrario with you from 11 to 2 here on 101 ESPN. That voice you just heard coming back was Andy McCullough. He joined Carriker and Smallman last Friday here on 101 ESPN. If you missed any of the uh, of that, you can check out the podcast page. And talking about how the Cardinals are likely to add, but probably not from the top of the market. And so with that as the back of our, our, our mind here, Ferrario, let's look to Kylie McDaniel who works for ESPN.com, and he's kind of been our voice of reason with some of these projections. How much are some of the non-tenders going to be paid this offseason? Put out his first projections over the weekend, and he has Kyle Schwarber and Eddie Rosario both getting uh, one-year $8 million deals. He has Adam Duvall making a one-year $4 million deal, and David Duvall, in his mind, is likely to get a one-year $3 million contract. Alex, in my mind, as I look through these four players and the contracts that they could potentially get this offseason, it seems pretty clear to me that if the Cardinals end up playing in that market for those particular players, David Dahl would be the one that seems most likely. One year, $3 million very much in their market, along with the fact that they would still have that one year of club control the following season as well because of his arbitration rights that would carry over. I think David Dahl 
because of that price range, feels even more likely to me today than he did a week ago. Yeah, I agree with that. $3 million, one, screams the Cardinals because that's right around the bargain bins that they're diving into. The other thing that David Dahl makes a lot of sense to me is he's a project, and I feel like the Cardinals like guys like that. I know that sounds weird, but it's a guy who's had success. He's shown success but he just needed a change of scenery and they take those guys on and sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't, but everything about David Dahl screams Cardinals. He's a speed guy. He's defense. He shows the power. He makes contact. He doesn't strike out a lot. I mean, everything about this guy is Cardinals. And frankly, for $3 million, if you're getting a 10th overall pick in the draft, that's a pretty big steal and something you would want to take a chance on so yeah that makes more sense than the eight million dollar schwarber or rosario deal the problem of course is the injuries and david Dahl, over the last four seasons so since 2017 has played a total of 200 major league games 200 in four years it's not what you're looking for he hasn't played more than 100 games in any individual season and he was terrible last year he hit 185 with a 222 on base percentage into the season with zero home runs. This is a guy that you're counting on a major bounce back from, from a poor performance offensively, and who has shown some real injury issues in the past as well. So I guess my follow-up question to this is, are we just going to convince ourselves that whoever the Cardinals sign, whether it be Jock Peterson or David Dahl or uh, Adam Duvall, whoever it is, if they if it's somebody that's going to have to have a bounce back or has shown at least flashes of potential in the past. Do you think that Cardinals fans will convince themselves that that guy's going to be able to perform here or are we going to be critical of them and look into the fact that this is. Likely not a true answer in the lineup. How, how are we going to view these guys as they come in? Mine, my opinion would be the latter that you said. It's going to be basically somebody comes in and say, this is what we got to upgrade the offense. Unless it's Kyle Schorber or Eddie Rosario, no matter what name is brought in. And I think you have to throw David Dahls in that because of what he's done and being the projection. But if it's not one of those three names... It's going to be brought in and you're going to say as a Cardinals fan, this is what you think is going to upgrade our offense. It's going to be criticism. It's going to be, well, this is what you're going for. Then you're just pretty much tanking or you're just going for the NL central central crown. Anything that the Cardinals do, unless it's those three names is going to be viewed as just getting by rather than trying to upgrade the offense. See the, the way that I view this is, and I know this is going to be controversial with some portions of the fan base, if they're going the Adam Duvall or Brian Goodwin route, I would rather them just go with Lane Thomas and Justin I Williams agree. and Tyler O'Neill again next year. Yep. Brian Goodwin last year hit 215 in his career. He is basically a 770 OPS type of a guy, which is fine, but it's not changing your lineup. Uh, Adam Duvall in his career is basically what we've all seen thus far from Tyler O'Neill, except for last year when he had so much protection in the lineup that I can't trust what he did last year in Atlanta. And clearly the Braves don't trust what he did either. Otherwise they would have tendered him. So if you're going to shop in that market, just stick with what you have right now. Right. With David Dahl, I can convince myself that there's some upside there. And yes, there is absolutely injury risk that comes along with that upside. But if he hits, Okay, well, now you could be looking at what he did in 2019, where even if it is only 100 games, if you got a guy that's going to hit 30 doubles and 15 homers with 60 RBI in 100 games, I would sign up for that tomorrow, Mm -hmm. just like that. But if he's really bad, 
okay, well, for $3 million, the one-year $3 million, you could cut him in the middle of the season, and you just move forward that way as well. Mm -hmm. But for me, the guys that I'm not going to buy into are the even lower levels of the market with the Brian Goodwins and the Adam Duvalls. I don't need to sign up for that. I feel like they already have that player on the team, even if we're all frustrated and don't want to see it with Tyler O'Neill and Lane Thomas anymore. At least they're cheap, cost-controlled, and I can buy into one more year of seeing it. Well, and that comes back to the outfielder position thing, too. Like, if we're going out there and we're under the assumption, which we talked about, is no DH this season, you're going to bring in another outfielder and logjam yourself. So if you're in this market, if you're going a Brian Goodwin or these names that we've talked about and they're not obvious upgrades, yeah, you go with the outfielders that you got and you would upgrade in the infield, right? Like that would be the thing that makes the most sense. If you're spending $2 million, $3 million, why not upgrade with somebody who is a bat who can bring you offense but is making you better in the area that you exploit, right? Defense, running, base running, pitching, like Upgrade at third base, upgrade at second base, upgrade as a utility man with a bat that comes off the bench rather than bringing in an outfielder who, if he's not going to be playing every day, how is he expected to help you? So, yeah, I'm with you. There's no point in even discussing a Brian Goodwin or a Hunter Renfro or any of these names that are outfielders, because frankly, you have all of these guys. Every outfielder that you have on your team right now is a different it's a, it's an identity of a player that's a free agent, right? Like Tyler O'Neill's the power guy. You just never gave him the shot or you don't have the opportunity. At least that's what the Cardinals are saying. Lane Thomas is the guy that's the five-tool player, but you've never seen it. You need to see more. That's what they're telling us. Dylan Carlson, Harrison Bader. Like you see where I'm going. These free agents that are available, you have them. You just haven't given them the proper shots. At least that's what you're telling us. I feel like Cardinals fans need to do a blind taste test with these outfielders Uh-oh. that are available, both internally and the external options, right? Because we add these names to them and you feel better about it, right? Like I can add Brian Goodwin's name and you're like, okay, I, I could talk myself into that. Mm-hmm. Or somebody from the 804 says, what's the downside to Nomar Mazzara? Um, you, you could look into all of these different options Adam Duvall that we've talked about since the start of the off season. And my answer is basically, okay, so it's different. It's, it's Coke versus Pepsi, right? right? And everybody's got their decision of which one do you prefer? Some people prefer Pepsi. Some people prefer Coke at the end of the day. They're both brown, dark sodas, right? And that's what we're talking about right now with the Cardinals outfield. You've got all of these different options that basically amount to the same thing. So to the text lines question, what's the downside to Nomar Mazzara? Uh, Last year, he had 10 walks and 150 plate appearances. So he's Tyler O'Neill. He's Tyler O'Neill with less power. Um, What's the downside to Brian Goodwin? Well, last season he hit 215. And he's a guy that in his career has mostly been a backup. So Harrison Bader slash Lane Thomas slash Dexter Fowler. Right. So that's what you're looking at from these guys. And it's a different name. It gives you a little bit of a different route to the same ultimate production. Mm -hmm. And that's what the problem is for the Cardinals right now as they look into this market is there's very few players in that sub five million dollar category that gives you tangible results that are different than what you should expect from Tyler O'Neill or Lane Thomas. And this is why, at least with those two, by going with them next year, I get something out of it. Mm -hmm. And what I get is I learn what they are as players. We can't do this again going into the 2022 season when I hope that the Cardinals are actually contending. The hope should be going into next year, instead of signing these sub-$5 million outfielders, 
I at least get answers on Tyler O'Neill and Lane Thomas and Harrison Bader. What are they? Are they a part of my future or not? If the answer that to that is no, then they should either be traded or waived after this upcoming season. If the answer, though, is yes, if Tyler O'Neill has that breakout season and has 500 plate appearances and hits 30 homers and strikes out a little bit less. OK, well, now you've got a player to build around and he's cheaper than any of these guys and he's more for the future. You can build around him for the next three to four years. But at least there I'm getting an answer that can help me in 2022 with a guy like Adam Duvall or Brian Goodwin or Mazzara, you're just looking at a guy that's a one-year stopgap that gives you the same production and has no future here in St. Louis. So I would stick with the guys that they currently have as opposed to going out and getting one of those guys in the dumpster bin. That's why if I'm going to upgrade, I'm going to upgrade at a position that's going to create competition for a player that I already know who he is, and that's Matt Carpenter. If Matt Carpenter is your third baseman solely out of the fact he makes $18.5 million, that I'm going to upgrade in the bargain bin by getting somebody who's cheap, who's shown upside, who can play the position of third base and spell a Paul DeYoung or Tommy Edmond would need be. Infield is the position I'm going to be looking at if it's not a Schorber or Rosario who can hit you at the DH position. He's Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Coming up next, is it officially time to take the Browns seriously as a contender in the AFC? I'll tell you one team that definitely is after what I saw last night. We'll talk about that next as NFL Quick Hitters is on 101 ESPN. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. He's Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Let's dive into some NFL Quick Hitters coming out of what was a strange NFL Sunday. <laughs> there were very few well-played, intriguing games, but one of them was Browns versus Titans. And Ferrario, we talked about it all week last week. If the Browns were to win that game, do we have to take them seriously? Rex Ryan on Get Up earlier today certainly sound like he sounded like he is. If they get average play from the quarterback position, this team can go deep in a playoffs. Well, if they get this Baker Mayfield, shoot, they can win it all. Mm. I don't know if I'm willing to go there just yet. But Baker Mayfield was great yesterday against the Titans, and the Titans defense certainly deserves some criticism for that. But Mayfield, 25 of 33 for 335 yards and four touchdowns through the air. This is a Browns team that had been relying heavily on its running game for much of the season. But they are now nine and three. They're second in their own division, and they just picked up a win against the Titans. Ferrario, is it time to take the Browns seriously? I think 100% it is. And let me ask you this, BK, because if you're not there yet from what Rex Ryan said of not ready to say that they could win the whole thing, we all agree that the Chiefs are the team that we all expect to win this Super Bowl. If the Browns do get that Baker Mayfield for how poorly the Chiefs defense has played over the last few weeks and for how great the Browns defense has been playing. And then of course with Chubb and Hunt and if you get that Baker Mayfield in a Super Bowl game, part of me wonders if they can win it all. Because that running game, I mean that running game is second to none right now. I mean they just proved it against Derrick Henry who we all Mm -hmm. agree has been the MVP in the running back position. But with Baker Mayfield throwing four touchdowns, and if that defense can it just at least stay above water, I mean, there's no reason that you can't consider them to be a favorite in the AFC. So here's the way that I would look at it. If they were to get that Baker Mayfield, sure, they can probably go to the Super Bowl. Right. My opinion is that I do not believe they will get 
that Baker Mayfield moving and forward. And I agree 100%. The Titans defense has been a problem for them all year. We haven't talked a lot about it because we've been so caught up with the offense and what Derrick Henry and Ryan Tannehill have done. And they were good again yesterday, especially in that comeback. Um, it ultimately fell a little bit short, but they were able to come back after they were down big early in that game. That defense is a problem. They haven't been able to stop anybody on third down all season long. And that might be the downfall for the Titans moving forward. The Browns don't have those same issues. Their corners were both out yesterday. And so they weren't able to cover particularly well, especially on Corey Davis. But I don't expect that to be a problem in the future. Their problem is still a quarterback. And I don't trust what they're going to get from Baker on a week in week out basis. That being said, I think I'm going to flip what I said last week about the Titans being potentially the third best team in the AFC. I'm going to have to go with the Browns now. I would go with the Chiefs as the number one, Yep. the Steelers two, and then the Browns for me right now would be my third best team in the AFC. Are you keeping the Titans four then? Yes. Because I'm see, for me, I'm still keeping the Titans ahead of the Colts. Even with the Colts victory and the over Bills the weekend. have to fit in there somewhere. Yeah, I guess that's I don't know true. what to make of the Colts this year. I think they're the typical team that they're going to go 10 and 6, 11 and 5, and nobody's going to believe in them in the playoffs. Right. They're going to get to the postseason. They're going to get into that wild card round and they're going to lose in the first round. Yeah. I think the ceiling is pretty firm there. Yeah, I, I think I would put the the Bills ha- would have to be behind the Browns. If the Browns are going three, which I'm with you, I think the Browns have to be up there for the way that, that Baker Mayfield has played. And they're doing this right now with healthy everywhere other than kind of the guys that missed this past weekend. But I mean, that's insane. The fact that you go from the Titans being the third best team last weekend to now dropping to the fifth best team with the Bills and the Browns jumping ahead of them. As we continue here with some NFL quick hitters on 101 ESPN in the NFC West, Ferrario, which team left you uh, scratching your head more based on their results over the weekend? Seahawks. Was it the Cardinals or the Seahawks? (laughs) Sorry, I didn't even need time to ask. Like, I think the Cardinals, I've been on that train, too, that the Cardinals just don't look like a, a, a legit contender to me right now they still look like it's a work in progress the Seahawks through the first seven games of the season have been MVP Russell Wilson nobody can stop that offense they get Jamal Adams back you're thinking this defense can stand they can stand up against people now but if you go from week seven on I mean I think Russell Wilson now leads the league in turnovers with 10 I mean you're getting the complete opposite Russell Wilson than what we had in the first seven weeks of the season So the one that I'm scratching my head on is a team that couldn't beat the Giants and props to the Giants. But Russell Wilson, DK Metcalf, the teams we've been talking about for so long, they're a team right now that I don't know if they can make it out of the first round of the playoffs. Interesting. And that might be even the matchup that we see in the first round of the playoffs, depending on what happens down the stretch. I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to go with the Cardinals because at this point, I'm not even sure they're going to make the playoffs. Yeah, They play that aforementioned Giants team in New York this upcoming weekend. They finish the year with the 49ers and then on the road against the Rams, the team that just pummeled them yesterday. I have some serious questions about this team. I, I bought all in probably earlier than I should have. And I think we were led astray by the Hale Murray. Yeah. Because if you flipped that game, right? If DeAndre Hopkins doesn't come down with that touchdown, well, then they would have lost back-to-back games against the Dolphins and the Bills. And since then, they've lost to the Seahawks, Patriots, and Rams in consecutive weeks. They've lost four of their last five, and the only victory in that is the Bills game where they won on the final play of the game. Mm -hmm. So I think the Cardinals are a fun story. Kyler Murray has been a fun player. 
I don't know that they're as different from what they were in 2019 as I was hoping that they were going to be, though. Is Kyler Murray starting to fall into the Lamar Jackson territory this season? And look, Lamar Jackson was an MVP, but I think we all are on the same page that Lamar Jackson might not be the player we thought he was. Are we starting to get to that point with Kyler? Because I know it's only two years, but I mean, do we really believe that what Therese Paler told us without Larry Fitzgerald, this is what we're getting? I don't know. I'm not there yet. I still believe Kyler Murray's a really good player. I think he's going to be a really good player. That being said, the shoulder injury is what has me concerned. Yeah. Our guy, Jamie Rivers, mentioned this a few weeks ago. He said he was worried about the hits that he's going to take. I think he does a really good job of protecting himself when he runs. But the fact that he is already injured this season with that shoulder and it has clearly impacted his ability to perform in the last couple of weeks. It makes me question what they're going to be. And I have I've said this before. I'll say it again. I have real questions about whether or not Cliff Kingsbury is the answer there. Yeah. I like what he does. I thought that it was an interesting hire, thought it was a smart hire because he's an innovative head coach, but it seems to me like some of the rest of the league has caught up to what they're trying to do there. Similar to what you're talking about with Lamar in Baltimore, mm-hmm. teams have caught up with what they're trying to do as well. Speaking of catching up with an offense, after what we saw last night, do you have any concerns about the Chiefs moving forward after they beat the Broncos in what was a strange game? The offense never really seemed to click. They had some questionable decisions on fourth downs. Tyreek Hill not able to come up with a catch and then did have the catch, but they decided they not challenge. to challenge it. Yeah. What did you make of the performance last night from the Chiefs against the Broncos? You know, this one was hard for me to kind of to differentiate. One, I had a lot of anger because Pat Mahomes and Tyreek Hill were on my fantasy team, <laughs> and that really hurt. But look, it's a divisional game, which these divisional gets like the Raiders right like we all were, were questioning that first Raiders game why they lost and then the second one they come out it was a close one but the Chiefs looked like the ultimate team the same thing can be said with this Broncos look the Broncos defense is not upset at all this season they have showed people more than what anybody expected without Von Miller and then Drew Locke and the the committee that they put together there but it's one of those divisional games and the divisional opponents know you better than anybody else. So this one was hard for me to look at and say, oh, well, this takes the Chiefs a back to step. But I mean, they can't go back that much further because the Steelers had the exact same week, right? So it's two just to me had a bad week, but still are above everyone else right now in the league. So I think there's two things that concern me if you're a Chiefs fan right now. The offensive line's a disaster, and the running game yesterday was bad as a result, and Patrick Mahomes was under duress most of the day as a result of the offensive line being poor. That's a concern moving into the postseason. The second thing, the defense has got to start performing better because last night in the fourth quarter, they finally lived up to expectations, but the first three quarters, they were not good defensively. And you look to the third down efficiency, they were third seven for 13, the Broncos were at the end of the game. Mm-hmm. Most of those stops came in the fourth quarter. That's something that when you're going up against an offense like the Titans or the Steelers or the Browns, it could be problematic for you. The Chiefs defensive line has been an absolute nightmare. They're paying way too much for them to struggle this way. But the offense as a whole, Patrick Mahomes was a little bit off on one deep throw to Tyree Kill. They had another deep throw to Tyree Kill that was caught that they didn't decide to challenge. And it ultimately resulted in a punt on the next play. There were just a few an inch here, an inch there. The offense ends up scoring 35, 40 points as opposed to 22. And then the red zone issues are what they are. But the offensive line and the defense are the two things that I'm concerned about after that game. They're still my favorite team in the AFC, 
but I do have some questions about them, more so even than I did at this point last year. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. The name we've been talking about all along, Ferrario hates hearing it, but he has officially been connected to the Cardinals. I'll tell you by who coming up next on 101 ESPN. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. I really like Jock Peterson. He's not a great outfielder. He's better than Ozuna, um, and he can't hit lefties. But, man, that guy can crush right-handed pitching, and that's about three-quarters of the pitching out there. So he would be a guy I'd be interested uh, to sign as, as some badly needed power. And he can he can manage in the outfield. He's not going to kill you, but he's certainly not someone I would look at as a plus glove. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. That was Mike Petriello a few weeks ago talking to us about the Cardinals' options to potentially play outfield slash DH. Of course, we don't know if the Cardinals will have the luxury of having a DH this upcoming season, but he says Jock Peterson would be a fantastic option for the Cardinals. I know that is not somebody's name that Alex Ferrario wanted to hear, but he is not alone. Mike Petriello is now joined by Ken Rosenthal, who put together some news and notes from around the league earlier today. And he wrote about one player in particular who could be of interest for the Cardinals. He said, quote, after Marcelo Zuna, Jock Peterson might emerge as the most desirable options out of a glo- of uh, free agent left field types. That includes David Dahl, Adam Duvall, Brett Gardner, Robbie Grossman uh, and Kyle Schwarber. The teams with at least some interest in Peterson include the Brewers, the Cardinals, and the White Sox. No, God! No, God, please, no! 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 I think that is the guy for me that I I think I'm all in on Jock Peterson, Ferrario. I think he, to me, makes the most sense because it's a natural fit. He's a left-handed hitting outfielder that mashes right-handed pitching, His projections right now, if you were to look on baseball reference, he's projected for 18 homers, a 230 batting average, which which stinks, but slugging around 500 on the year and finishing with an 800 OPS. That's that's pretty good. That is something that could certainly help the Cardinals. And if you put him into this outfield mix, you basically start Harrison Bader against lefties and center. And then against righties, you're going to have Jock Peterson in left, Dylan Carlson in center, and Dexter Fowler in right. I think to me, after looking through all of these free agent options, if you're just looking purely at how do you upgrade the lineup the best way possible with the least amount of money possible, I think it's Jock Peterson and Ken Rosenthal has officially connected the Cardinals with him. Okay, look, this name makes every part of my insides turn, but let's go down this this route. Let's go down this Jock Peterson road, BK. What makes you think that the Dodgers aren't going to bring this guy back? Because frankly, yes, he's a free agent, but it's hard for me to believe that somebody who is this desirable on the market, who was just a part of a Dodgers World Series run, wouldn't want to go back to L.A. and L.A. having the same interest in him. I think they just have so much depth right now that I don't think they see a need for him. Now, if if they could bring him back, I'm sure they would. But when you look at what they have in the outfield for next season right now, you've already got Cody Bellinger, Mookie Betts, A.J. Pollock, Chris Taylor, and they've got some guys in the minors that could potentially help them out, out there as well. I just I think that they're looking at their roster right now and saying, do we need Jock Peterson? And it's crazy to say that he's a luxury for a team. 
but he kind of is for the Dodgers. And so if I'm if I'm in charge of them and I have the option of bringing back Jock Peterson at five to eight million dollars next season or going with what I have and maybe upgrading the offense on the infield, I think they would prefer to upgrade the offense on the infield as opposed to what is already a pretty crowded outfield for them. So then the other side of this one, too, is what you said. You're going to be playing Jock Peterson against righties and Harrison Bader against lefties. Now, in Major League Baseball, as we heard Mike Petriello say on that return, got a lot more righties than you do lefties in mm-hmm. the league. It's hard for me to believe. And again, I'm not saying this. I'm putting on the Cardinals front office hat here. It's hard for me to believe that you're going to be playing more Jack Peterson than Harrison Bader in a 162 game schedule for how much they talk about Harrison Bader and how much we've talked about. He is improved in the Cardinals eyes. I understand. It might be hard to believe, but if you're the Cardinals and you're going to actually, if you want to learn a lesson from this year's World Series and from the Tampa Bay Rays, it's this. It's not about the individual players. It's about what they can become as a collective group, right? Harrison Bader's bad against righties. In his career against righties, he has a 670 OPS. That's terrible. That's a light-hitting infielder. Mm -hmm. That's a light-hitting second baseman. It's not good enough. But against lefties, he's really good. An 855 career OPS, a guy that hits 500 slugging percentage against lefties. He can really hit against lefties. So what you do to make him the best player possible is you're basically using two players to become one. So that way you have a guy out there every day with an 800 OPS. So against righties, you're going to have Jock Peterson, and he's got that 800 OPS against righties. Against lefties, you go with Harrison Bader. Is that the best case scenario? No, you like to have somebody that just they're really good no matter who the pitcher is go Paul Goldschmidt but in the outfield but if you're not willing to pay well then I don't know how you go get that guy this is the way to acquire cheap upgrades in the outfield and does it mean that Harrison Bader starts less and would that be potentially admitting defeat on what he is as a player probably but at this point in his career I feel pretty comfortable that we can say Harrison Bader is a really good hitter against lefties and not good against righties because he's already had a thousand career plate appearances. Here's the other thing too with Jock Peterson is is he going to fit into this Cardinals Jeff Albert system? He's a home run hitter. We've seen that. Correct me if I'm wrong, he's a strikeout guy too. Not as bad as you would think. Really? He struck out 22% of his plate appearances in his career which is not great, but it's not as bad as like a Tyler O'Neill. Right. He's not striking out 30% of the time. So he walks, he walks about 10% of the time, strikes out a little bit, but not as badly as you would expect. So the on-base percentage is there and the power is absolutely there. So I actually think he'd be a pretty good fit for that. So if he fits into this system and if he makes the most sense, in my eyes, if you're bringing in Jock Peterson, you are signifying the end of one of these outfielders. I think you can cross off Justin Williams. Like that's over with if you're bringing in a Jock Peterson. Because he's out of options this upcoming season. Correct. So he would likely have to go elsewhere. So the other name, though, that I think you get to is I think you get to the point where it's either Tyler O'Neill or Lane Thomas is, hey, you know what? You may get your shot, but it's not going to be here that much. It's going to be minors, whatever the minor league looks like, or if we want, we can find a way to move on from you. Because if you bring in a Jock Peterson and you're platooning the playing time between him and Harrison Bader, you're going to be platooning at least some playing time between Dexter Fowler and Tyler O'Neill, maybe a little Lane Thomas here, and then, of course, Dylan Carlson. There's just not enough reps with no DH to go around for another outfielder. Yeah, I I think that might be the case. And if they decide, who do you think if they had to give up on one, like either send them down to the minors or trade them, who do you think they would be more likely to give up on at this point in their careers between Tyler O'Neill and Lane Thomas? Honestly, I I hate saying it, but Tyler O'Neill. 
I really think because look at what happened in this past season once the postseason and the end of the year came around. You didn't even see Tyler O'Neill. Dylan Carlson was getting those shots. And I guarantee you if Lane Thomas was available and not uh, as as struck by COVID as he was, he would have been getting more shots than Tyler O'Neill. I think Lane Thomas is still an unknown to the Cardinals. We've heard them talk about Lane Thomas. So as much as I hate to say it, because I guarantee you he's going to make you pay at some point, Tyler O'Neill would be the guy I'd see the Cardinals saying, if we're getting Jock Peterson and he can hit righties, he's a home run hitter, he walks more than you do, Tyler, we're going to have to move on. I think because they are so starved for power in this lineup, I think what you would see is you see Tyler or Tyler O'Neill on the major league roster and Lane Thomas sent down to AAA, and I think Lane Thomas would play as long as they're going to have a season next year, right. I think he would be a guy that spends most of the season down in Memphis, barring some sort of injury taking place at the major league roster. And I think they just, they try to improve with the power from within and then adding a guy like Jock Peterson. Um, I, I think that would be the route that they would take with Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. We're going to cross things over with the fast lane coming up next. We're back to the ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. A huge congratulations. Some news for your Cardinals. Adam Wainwright is the 2020 Major League Baseball Roberto Clemente Award winner for all of the wonderful things, incredible things that he's been doing off of the field. Um, Well-deserved for Adam Wainwright. A huge honor for him. Something that I know um, is going to be every bit as meaningful for Adam Wainwright as anything that he's ever accomplished on the field for his off-field philanthropy. So huge congratulations to Adam Wainwright on the award. Joining us now in studio for the crossover is Anthony Stalter. Stalt, how you doing, man? Doing good. Pretty pretty fun weekend. Put the the Christmas decorations up. Got some lights up. Got the tree up, and that's always that's always fun to do. Are you a guy that's getting up on the um, the roof and you're clipping everything in with the lights, or are you just like right above the garage? You're gonna put down some of the icicle things. So usually, <laughs> usually I do the Christmas lights right right in front. Like my my parents come up from Florida. My dad and I will do it, and we'll just do like the trees and stuff out front. No, I'm not the guy on the ladder. But my wife, Kristen, she had the idea of. In the backyard, the there's there's this hill in this back in our backyard, and there's pine trees, big pine trees that go all the way up, and and they basically run the length of our yard. There's eleven of them, and she says, you know, it'd be cool Jeez. if we wrapped. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I didn't plan them. I, say, I hope you guys don't put Christmas trees in your house. Just do the ones outside. There you go. So she she had the idea of, hey, let's wrap the Chris the uh, the trunks of the pine trees with the Christmas lights. Mm-hmm. I'm like, ah, oh, that'll look good. Well, I'm up on a hill. I don't know if you guys know this, but pine needles they are suck. basically ice. Yep. I'm shocked I didn't shred my ACL. <laughs> my two little ones, Madeline and Killian, are four and two respectively. They were helping, which equated to getting tangled in said Naturally. lights and dumping everything everywhere. <laughs> uh, my wife made me a, a drink a couple of times, which spilled twice because, again, hill. And it's a little bit darker because you can't really do anything when the kids are outside. So you got to wait until they basically go inside for the night. And then you're out there in the dark. It was a bit of a mess, but I think it looks so good. So basically you were close to just breaking all of the lights and saying, no Christmas for anyone. <laughs> basically. Yeah. Smart. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to 
torch the entire the entire backyard. See, it wasn't just going to be the trees. This is the dilemma the I'm in now because my pregnant wife is wanting Christmas lights up on our new house, and I haven't done it to this point. And I'm kind of to the point now where what's the point of going up on the roof and clipping them all in? Because you're only going to have them for what four weeks, and then you're going to have to take them I mean, down. At this point, you're still you're you still gotta, under you know, our obligation oh, yeah. for doing so. I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Because I've been trying to weasel. If it was like December 20th, I think you could get out of it. I've but December 12th, I've been or trying 7th? to weasel my way out of this, and I don't think there's any way to. Your neighbors got them. Oh yeah. Yes, yes. All thing. of them do too. You know, I go up into so obviously the show. By the time we're done, the show it's dark outside. Mm-hmm. So I'm driving up our street and I'm looking at all the lights. I'm like, I can't be that guy that doesn't do it. And I am that guy. And we're the we're the new people in the neighborhood oh, too. So now we're the participate. jerks. And we're at the end of the like uh, the cul-de-sac. So we're like the one house when you drive all the way down, you look straight at it. So we're the jerks with no Christmas I feel Christmas like there's lights. two things you can't be that guy for. You can't be that guy with your lawn. If everybody else oh, yeah. has their lawn well manicured in your in your neighborhood, you yep. can't be the guy that's got it like 10 feet tall yeah, that's bad. and gro- going crazy. You can't be that guy in it's the bush summer. League. That is Bush League. And then right now, you can't be the guy with everybody else in your um, in your neighborhood having the lights up. You can't be the only one that doesn't have them. And you can't be the jerk that says, oh, well, I'll just put them in the bushes. Right, like I'll just put them in the bushes in the front of the house, and that's good if enough. If they look nice, it's that that's okay. You think so? I'll allow that. Okay. Yeah, I don't think you have to do the whole thing where because I have and I haven't gotten the ladder out and getting clipping clipping onto the. <laughs> you gotta at least put an effort in, a, a it, little yeah. bit of effort. That that's yeah. all. That's all you is that is required. If you want to go above and beyond, so be it. Right. But you've got to put a little effort. In. I guess it's important in the new neighborhood. Right. I don't have the best track record with neighbors, so. Oh really? What? Oh my god, my old house. My neighbors despised us. Why? So long story short, so we moved into the house, and the people that sold us the house were the next door neighbors, and they were the parent of the people that previously lived in our house. Okay. I know this is a really weird cross train right now. So when we moved into the house, the previous owners, who were the kids of our next door neighbors, left all of their stuff in there which was kind of a jerk move in itself. So we just start tearing up everything. We're tearing up carpet. We're moving out junk. And all they kept doing, the neighbors would walk by and be like, what are you guys doing? Why are you guys so, why are you guys taking this out? This looks great. What are you guys messing with this for? My house. Yeah. They they, they, they pried and they pried and they pried. And so like it finally got to the point where kind of lost it. Like, hey, we're doing what we want to do with our house. Can to leave us be? And they did not like that. We became the jerks of the neighborhood. <laughs> Well, that's on them. <laughs> Sounds like you're better off. That's what I said. Sounds like you're better off. I suddenly have a lot less uh, apparently, sympathy for it. But apparently the neighborhood all, you know, is one big clan. They didn't like us. Wow. Join into the holiday spirit by contributing to Carriker and Smallman's 12 Days of T-Shirts fundraiser for the Little Bit Foundation. If you donate at least $25 online between now and December 14th, you will receive a complimentary 101 ESPN T-Shirt as a gift for your donation. 12 days to donate. 12 days to score that free 101 ESPN T-Shirt. Thanks to our presenting sponsor, Massage Lux. Find all the details to make your donation of our 12 Days of T-Shirts fundraiser right now at 101ESPN.com. That's also where you find the podcast brought to you by I Promise. Stoltz, what's coming up today on the Fast Lane, my friend? We're going to discuss some some questions surrounding the Blues heading into the um, the new season, whenever, whatever that's going to be. We'll certainly talk about Adam Wainwright, give him some love following the Roberto Clemente Award, and then uh, some breakdowns from yesterday, including what the hell happened to the Jets. Wow. Well, their DC is gone. <laughs> their di- Greg Williams, old former Rams DC, as well. You know, the other aspect too is like, who's good? Who do, who's good? Every, there's a lot of good teams. There's one great team, maybe two, maybe. And, I and even see- even the great team, I'm assuming you're talking about the Chiefs. 
I think they're not quite as great as they were this time last year. Because changing aside. I think they're very good. I could I could look like an idiot in a couple of hours. Nothing new for me. I think Washington gives Pittsburgh a game. That'd be interesting. And then if you look at the point spreads right now, 49ers are a one point favorite against Buffalo. I like the Niners tonight. I picked him in our pick'em league. By the way, you're up to get you're you're up to getting shot. Oh baby! What? Yeah, is he really? Yes, because you're your team fast lane now. Yeah, but why am I getting shot? You I'm in last right, right now. You're in last. I have the Niners. You have the Bills. And I think I'm I'm the only one that picked the Niners. So we would like be tied. Oh my! Comes God. down to a tiebreaker. Okay, you join in like two days and you get shot in the ass. I never truly agreed to be a part of the, <laughs> part fast, of the fast lane. <laughs> Sorry, part of the team now, you my man. Welcome out. Fast lane's coming up from two to six. Jamie Rivers will be with them. We will be back tomorrow for Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie right here on 101 ESPN. Mm. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast, powered by I Promise.